Hello, and welcome back to Metastation for our recap of episode 511, The Dark Year. My name is Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi. And uh, so today we are talking about the episode that we've been uh, waiting for and wondering about and speculating over all season long, which is that we finally got the bunker flashbacks that revealed kind of how Bloodraina became Bloodraina and confirmation that the thing about cannibals that it feels like the fandom sort of figured out immediately was in fact what it was. I was trying to remember <laughs> when I watched the episode, I was like, I was trying to think like, like I know Marie kind of like confirmed it. Um, like you dropped heavy enough hints at unity days that kind of confirmed it. But I sort of feel like even before then, like I, I was trying to remember like, how did we know? And it feels like we just kind of like, knew through osmosis like like one day we kind of were just like oh they became cannibals down there and well, everyone was like oh yeah I, I think it was there was like a lot of speculation about it just because like I, I think some of it was just sort of like well they're in a bunker you know with like a hydro farm that can go wrong kind of thing but there was definitely there was at least one thing that I know kind of was what made it feel like not just like it wasn't just fan speculation, and that was um I think one of the props people tweeted out a picture of like limbs and then one of them like miming taking a bite of it and oh about, that's kind of right yeah so I think that I when remember that now there was, yeah like, yeah yeah like, fan speculation before that but I think that's the point at which yeah. everybody was like oh my god this is actually what it's gonna be it's totally gonna be that you know and then the hints you know then the hints early in the season with like the reference to the blight mm-hmm. year and. Like, after that, I think all the, like, tiny little cannibalism hints, everyone was sort of primed to look for. So then we were all just kind of like, well, it's got to be cannibalism, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I definitely, like, from from the minute um, Abby mentioned the blight, which comes back again in this episode, I was sort of like, okay, so that's cannibalism confirmed. Mm-hmm. But I, but it's funny, like, I, I feel like... I feel like even before this season had started, I was like, I'm 100% sure this is going to be cannibalism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I forgot about the props picture. I was like, well, like, how do we, like, we know this. And then, like, the actors, the things at Unity Days, like, Sachin made a joke about there was, like, some some prop, some, like, big group scene that involved some prop that was so gross that people were barfing and that he and Jessica were kind of like, yeah, this is fine. While everyone else was, like, sick to their stomachs. And everyone was like, ah, okay. Yeah. But what was interesting, so when I, when I saw it, Jason in LA and we were talking about the dark year and how like, you know, intrigued everybody was to find out what it was. And something that he said that I was thinking about a lot was, you know, he was, he was like, it's not what you think. And I was like, Oh, something like he's saying like, it's not cannibalism. And he's like, I mean, like it, 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 it is what you think, but it is also not. Like, it's also more yeah, than that. And yeah. I was kind of like, okay, so it's a cannibalism plus something else. Like, it's not just like the reveal is going to be like, dun, 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 soil and green is people. And, <laughs> um, and so when I, when I watched it, I, I actually feel like to me, the, <laughs> as, as gross as those little jello shots were, I, the part of the, the part of the episode that is, that I found too grim almost to like rewatch was not the cannibalism. It was sort of the, the removal of agency by force by Octavia. So, um, so I think in that sense, I think it is true that the, like, I think the real horror of what happens in these flashbacks is less to do almost with the, like the fact that, they're resorting to 
temporary cannibalism to survive. And it's more about what it turns their whole culture into, what it turns everybody into to be complicit in that, what it does to them to be living in that kind of fear that, you know, that if you choose not to do this, Octavia will just walk up and shoot you. The really chilling mention that comes in the early scene where Abby basically is like, yeah, we'll be fine on protein from the fighting pits once the crime rate starts to rise, which it will, like all the sort of foreshadowing of like, the horrible thing this society is going to become because of that feels like yeah so so much worse and so much darker and so much more gruesome but also i think it did the work that it needed to do to make it make sense to us how how all these people but particularly the you know the kind of trifecta of octavia abby and kane how they became the people that they became when we meet them again after those six years and mm-hmm. the particular ways in which they're all just like broken. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that we, I think that the flashbacks did that work. So I was like, yep, I get, I get the particular way in which you are fucked up and the particular way in which you are fucked up and the particular way in which you are fucked up. Like, check, check, check. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's really, really, really fucking hard to watch. <laughs> really hard to watch twice. <laughs> yeah, really this was hard. the first episode where I was like, "We have to. We we always rewatch these at least twice, sometimes three times if they're really thorny before we record." And this one, I was like, "Man, I really don't want it." That was so great. And I found myself actually when I was rewatching the um those like dining hall scenes. I kept looking at the posters in the background, you know, partly just kind of be like, yes, you know, a little bit of kind of like Cadigan Becca sort of backstory. But like, really, I was just like, I don't want to look. I don't want to look. I don't want to look. Give me anywhere else to put my eyeballs in other than this sad man who's about to be like shot for not eating his brother. I know. I know. I know. know. Seriously. And like, I mean, there's a lot of sort of chatter on Twitter about like, why is it raw? You know, why is it? Why don't they just make a sandwich? Why don't they put it in soup or whatever? And and I think somebody has said something like, well, it's processed. And I have to say, like, <laughs> like I think it's pretty seems pretty obvious to me they did it for, like, maximum gross-out value. You know, like, there are way grosser ways mm-hmm. to, like, present that food. And, like, right, right. hats off to you, props team, for finding perhaps the grossest possible way to present <laughs> that for. <laughs> and hats off to the... Um, Directors and cinematographer, because those grim kind of flat overhead shot of like the steel tray mm-hmm. with like the little cup of broth, like the way, the way they filmed it was like sort of like straight overhead, like perfect cube in the center of the tray. Like it was just the way it was filmed. I was like, yeah, well, this I, I mean, I think it was like the, the, the whole, the, everything about the way that those scenes were produced was so well done. I think from, um, you know, those kind of like really stark angles, like you said, from like above or across the room, um, the way mm-hmm. that the sort of greenish light, like the, yeah. the thing behind Octavia is green, but there's this kind of like sickly fluorescent sort of deadening greenish light that makes everybody look a little bit mm-hmm. sort of sickly. It makes everything look a little bit kind of off. And then the other thing I noticed in the sound, um, there's this like persistent buzz of uh in the background in all of those scenes is kind of like fluorescent lighting buzz. Yep. Um that isn't present in any other scene that I think just kind of adds that sense of 
of like unease. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it just feels sort of and, and a sense of kind of like oppressiveness. You know, where you're like trapped in a room. Oh yeah, with this like annoying buzzing sound and you can't escape. And mm-hmm. you know, and so like all of that kind of adds together. So to the point where like as an audience you like really viscerally feel the discomfort of being there, you know, like you feel like trapped with them. And I thought that mm-hmm. was all very, um, very, very well done. So <laughs> good job for making yeah. it all feel like, ah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, I think in, in the one thing that I think works about that really nicely, which we can talk about a little bit when we get more to the, um, to the present day half of the story and, and how Abby's detox kind of is the framing device. But I think that it is not an accident that we're getting echoes of the kind of, in terms of the, the camera angles and the sound, that it's a little bit similar to the kind of, for lack of a better word, the Abby filter mm-hmm. that we got last episode, mm-hmm. where, you know, in, in seeing the world through her perspective, her disorientation, you know, putting us inside her, how it feels to be Abby in that moment of extreme distress that leads to the thing that happens with Vincent. You know, it felt like we were getting a lot of that. Like we was, it was always very clear to me that the flashbacks are from her perspective. Yeah. And we got the same, I think it was the same sort of fisheye lens um, they were using on all of the close-ups yep. for everyone in the flashbacks. Abby, Kane, Octavia, which I think... Uh, is again, I mean, it, it slightly distorts all their faces so that the, there's a sort of additional feeling of something is off, something is warped, you know, something is kind of being mm-hmm. twisted because, you know, they're recognizably them, but there's also just something a little bit off about all of them, you know, and then it also the way that it kind of mm-hmm. like sort of the, the really tight close-ups of their face, the way that it kind of like makes you feel trapped in their in their feelings i think that was all very well done mm-hmm. it kind of like builds up that feeling of like of these people sort of locked together in a situation that they can't escape um mm-hmm. that is sort of you know kind of inevitably twisting and warping and shaping all of them in ways that they don't want and have greater or lesser amounts of control over you know mhm yeah. And it's interesting because I don't think – I have to go back and look, but I don't think, like, the 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 guy that Octavia shot or any of the three people that Octavia shot, I don't think any of their close-ups were with that fisheye lens. I think it was it was just Abby, Kane, and Octavia, which I think is really interesting, mm-hmm. you know, that they're, they're the ones who are kind of warped visually, but then these other people aren't. Um, yeah, and – and not and Indra wasn't either. Indra wasn't I don't either. think. Like I, yeah. I think it to me what I what I liked about that about that framing of it in terms of like the actual like the cinematography and those choices was I I think because like we also one thing that doesn't happen um, that happens in a lot of bunker stories is you know we don't like for example like in the um, like in the last episode um, where we got or one before. Uh, where we had the big, like, you know, Octavia and Indra confrontation and Octavia, you know, like after Bellamy, like drugged her. And we, we bounced out of the Octavia perspective for a little bit because we got some Jackson, you know, like mm-hmm. we got a little bit of like, like another person who we care about who exists in this bunker story got to be present sort of in that point of view for a second. And in this episode, what I thought was really noteworthy is that even though we know from you know, how everything kind of manifested in, in the, you know, downline in the future that Nyla and Miller in particular were 
extremely deeply and troublingly, you know, transformed by the six years that they spent with Blood Reina to the point of, of doing things that seem totally unrecognizable to Bellamy and Clark when they meet them again after that six years. We, we got like, they were present because like, you know, everybody, all of Octavia's people all sort of sit at that one big long table together. Um, but they didn't, we didn't sort of really pop into how does this, feel for Nyla, how does this feel for Miller, except insofar as that was something that was landing on Kane and Abby and Octavia. So like there was kind of, there was no relief, you know, there was no, there was no departure from that really tight focus on these three people, Octavia, Abby, Kane, the very specific way in which this thing impacts them and everybody else around them, including the people that Octavia shot, kind of exist in the story to be a part of those three people's trauma in a way. You know, like those people, like Abby remembers so vividly the the faces of those people that Octavia shot because that was such a shocking, like paradigm shifting moment for everybody in that bunker. We do get, I mean, we do get a little bit. I mean, we get that little tiny Maxon moment where they sort of, where Miller says one year and they kind of hold hands. Yeah. Which is like a weird. Yeah, which was sweet. <laughs> sweet, but also creepy. It was like, what yeah, bonding but moment I, for us as a couple when we decided, yeah, let's eat some people. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was a very, it was kind of a very Balark moment where it's sort of like, Together, we will do this horrific thing. But, you know, we're together, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> it did then- – <laughs> um, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it, it, it is something that I'm just thinking about now that you mentioned that, that is, I think, an interesting um, – that I'm – I guess something that I'm just not thinking about is that this episode very much um, put Jackson as a unit with Miller and not with – Abby at all, which is something that I yeah. think is interesting. Yeah. Um, and then there was also, we got we got a little bit of Nyla saying, you mm-hmm. know, kind of like confronting and saying, I don't think I can do this. I keep thinking of their faces. Um, so we did get little glimpses, you know, of, of like the reactions of the other sort mm-hmm. of bunker characters that we know. And I thought it was interesting that we saw Nyla have a little bit of resistance, you know, that at first she was reluctant, mm-hmm. which, which you know, the contrast between that moment and then her saying to Clark later on, you know, how do you explain the sum to someone who's never seen it is really kind of unsettling, right? Because, like... Yes, yeah. So, you know, something about... Something that about everything that happened, like, Nyla could watch Octavia shoot those people and, and, and be, you know, engaged in cannibalism for a year. And at the end of it, you know, like, Nyla's 100% convinced that not only that Octavia made the right choices, but that she's, like, some kind of, like quasi-god amazing infallible leader, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, and that's sort of curious in it, in it, it makes me wonder a little bit about, for the people who kind of like had those moments of hesitation and then pushed past them and voluntarily chose to start eating, you know, the trauma is, is not that their choice was taken away and that they had to do something that they were repulsed by that felt wrong. Um by force, but that the trauma for them is sort of like, how do you justify to yourself the fact that you did freely make that choice? You know what I mean? Like, how do you explain mm-hmm. to yourself who you are when you know that 
that you were like, okay, I'm going to eat some people, you know? Yeah. And I'm going to stick with, and I'm going to stick with this leadership even after they've done these terrible things. And I think there's, there's some interesting psychology there just in terms of, you know, and I think like Octavia, I think is the character who's sort of most, most caught up in the problem of the sunk cost fallacy. You know, we're in this episode, she says yes. to Indra, yeah. like when we get to the valley, it will all make sense. It'll all be worth it. And, you know, it's very mm-hmm. clear that for, <clears throat> for Octavia, you know, like the fact that she's done these terrible, terrible things, you know, she's kind of stuck in the situation where like, I can't give up, you know, we can't not win because if we don't win, then that means I did all these fucked up things for nothing, you know? So like, this is sort of mm-hmm. everything rests. The, she's sort of like the ends justify the means. So we have to get to the ends. And it's interesting, you know, mm-hmm. to look at someone like Nyla, where I think, you know, even though she wasn't the one in charge of making those decisions, you can see how something like that logic is in play, you know, like, okay, like, Mm -hmm. if I chose to eat those people, and if I chose to stick with Octavia, when, you know, she made those choices, and I kept defending her, um, then she has to be right. She has to be right. Mm -hmm. Because if she's not right, Mm -hmm. and I did all that stuff, then, then I'm a fucking terrible person. You know what I mean? So it's like, kind of this, it's not Mm -hmm. really, like, like, the ethics of it is not, it's almost not really about ethics. It's more about sort of like, ego protection <laughs> you know it's about yeah like, oh yeah the inability to accept the truth about oneself if if you looked at a situation and admitted that you fully had and it fully admitted all the choices that you had i think that that's very much what happened to to miller too i think yeah. that, that kind of fanatical loyalty that he develops um both in terms of like you know his role like overseeing the fighting pits and the, you know, the way in which he kind of effortlessly continues to choose Octavia over Bellamy, showing like what, what an impact the last six years have had and kind of like solidifying his loyalty to her. I think it's very much similar where it's like, it's, you know, if, if everything that he did to keep her in power ends up saving their people, then he knows he was on the right side or he can feel like <laughs> he was on the right side, you know? Yeah. Um, and if it turns out that, all of it was wrong and there was all along there was a different way and you know then yeah then he was then he was party to terrible things mm-hmm. and i think that so that's something where i feel like something that i'm really interested in seeing um and maybe it'll begin in the finale and maybe it'll end up happening in season 6 is once the battle's over whichever side ends up prevailing like what happens you know, how does the when the dust settles, how does everybody kind of, you know, move forward once they're like they're not in the bunker anymore, they're not in that place anymore. There's no longer either way, there's no longer any need for a blood reina. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like like either they lose and she's not in power, or they win and they suddenly have ample resources and they don't need that kind of, you know, fear-driven scarcity mindset. Like, given some time to think about those things, you know, how does that shift everybody's relationship with themselves? Mm-hmm. You know, like, once like once it's quiet and you have some time to think, you're like, oh, yeah, that's – we did that. <laughs> <laughs> that happened. Well, I thought it was interesting. At the end of this episode, there's, like, a little tiny moment, which I didn't catch the first time, but I, I saw – you know, I caught it when I rewatched, when, um, you know, Miller reaches out to shake Bellamy's hand – and Bellamy just, like, pushes past him. And Miller looks a little bit startled. So I think, mm-hmm. like, I think it's starting to sort of come home 
to some characters like Miller who are sort of, you know, who maybe haven't fully realized, like, what their actions and choices mean to other people outside of one crew, you know, and or outside mm-hmm. of what they had assumed they meant, that, that some of those consequences are sort of still hanging above them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so, so it'll be interesting to see if and how those chickens come home to roost. <laughs> um, something, something else that I wonder um, that, that, that I, I wonder how it will come into play. And I, and I think if it does um, Miller, Miller or the other lady who's like the, the new Kara, the one with like, who's like following commander Maddie, um, Either one of them, I think, could potentially, or even Gaia, be somebody from whom, you know, through whom this storyline kind of comes into play. But something that I, that I think might, that I, that I kind of hope somebody confronts Octavia with is the idea that, like, um, you know, what, so much of this episode is about what starvation or the fear of starvation does to people mm-hmm. and, um, and the choices that it prompts them to make. And so we get, you know, we get Abby bringing back the illusion that she made at the beginning of the season to the blight generation, you know, like this whole generation on the arc that was wiped out because, you know, some of them chose to be cannibals and some of them didn't, but not enough to actually like make that a continued protein source. So it like wiped out this whole generation of people. And, you know, and we see that like the, you know, even though it's only for a year, it's like a temporary solution, you know, the cultural shifts that this choice made and all of them were permanent had these like lasting impacts. So what I am interested in is somebody like explicitly addressing to Octavia what it means that she was willing to burn the farm. Like what it means mm, that she yeah. was willing, even though she was as she was as fucked up by the dark year, I mean, arguably as anyone else, if not more so. Yeah. And every time it comes up, you know, like she like, you know, like Indra brings it up, Kane brings it up, and she's basically like, You're fired if you mention the dark year. Like she she also is like like deeply like hiding from and resisting and pushing away the trauma of what she also had to do mm-hmm. because of that. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet she chose the risk of that rather, she chose to gamble on that happening again by burning the farm rather than allow there to be a 100% cannibal free way <laughs> to support everybody. And maybe it's because like, like the, the the most sympathetic to Octavia explanation for that is that she actually has very good reason not to trust that hydroponic farm because the farm failing is what put them in that position. But still, somebody came to her and said, "Hey, like here's an option that that could, you know, potentially prevent you from ever for the rest of your life." Having to be back in that same position well, and again, Monty also you know, like said not to just her. I mean, like the other part of it is like Monty wasn't like, "Hey, I can fix your hydroponic farm and we can keep living here forever." He said, "I can fix your hydroponic hmm. farm so we can survive on that, 
for the few years it'll take me to make the ground outside arable Exactly. Again. So, like, yeah. so her choice wasn't even, yeah. like, either you stay in the hell bunker that reminds you of everything that you hate right. for eternity or you go have a war. It was, like, you stick mm-hmm. it out in the hell bunker for, like, a couple more years and then we'll have our own valley that we can mm-hmm. live in, you know, and – Exactly. And you don't even have to live in the bunker. You can just go down there and pick food and then you can like live outside in the sunshine. Right. Like he was offering a real solution. And, and even though she was like, she was so, she was traumatized by the dark year to the point of this almost kind of like cognitive dissociation into this second self. Like that's how badly it fucked her up. Yeah. She still chose to, Risk that again, like risk what happens to you when your people start running out of food because the existence of food that the like that the, the existence of free food is a threat to her power. And that's something that I feel like I want somebody to like confront her and make her think about what that means that. You know, I mean, Bellamy kind of does, although he doesn't know about the darkier stuff enough to really sort of like needle her with it, like I <laughs> like I kind of want somebody to. But by him mentioning like there's no food left in Polis because you burn the farm, and we're gonna you know be out of food by the time we get to the valley because everything we have left is war rations and people are starving again. So just like casual FYI, yeah. <laughs> you know, like like if you don't win, you're back where you were before, where all you're gonna have to eat is you know people and weeds again basically mm-hmm. um so i just so that to me was really interesting that like that juxtaposed with the flashback picture that we get of how badly it fucked everybody including octavia up to you know to feel like this was their only option that she willingly chose it again because the other option involved her not getting to be Blood Reina anymore is both really chilling and something that I hope that I hope we reckon with instead of kind of blowing past it. You know, yeah. like what does it mean that food scarcity created your totalitarian power and you'd rather keep your people in food scarcity to hold on to that power because that's what's keeping you afloat. Yeah, I mean I if it doesn't get addressed in some way, if that if that choice of hers, if that action doesn't come back somehow, then it feels like a huge dangling loose end, you know, it, or 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 just like a weird plot device, you know, like something that they had mm-hmm, like a, mm-hmm. like they had to have Octavia do it because they had to have some way presentation that they otherwise wouldn't have, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it'll it'll feel a little unsatisfying and a little like what the hell was that if it never comes up again like you said if no one ever says to her like (laughs) like you you Mm -hmm. recreated the exact same i mean i guess well you know like bellamy does say that to her bellamy says bless bellamy in this episode you know like he won't let her forget that she's that she's kind Mm -hmm. of like put them all in grave risk of dying Mm -hmm. but i mean i guess I guess yeah, it doesn't it doesn't entirely make sense to me why she would do that other than the other than just like her valuing her power over 
lives, which like might be it, but it's sort of like, okay, if I'm not supposed to think that Octavia is, is the devil as Cain calls her, then, then <laughs> I need some other kind of explanation. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I think, I think that it's um like, I think it, it works as a, like, what makes what makes a blood rain unnecessary, or like necessary in very heavy air quotes. Like what what makes what makes that kind of leader the kind of leader that you need to get you through a particular time is that you need like what they need somebody to. And Andrew even says this, like you know, she was the leader that we needed during this time. Maybe she's not anymore because they needed somebody to essentially keep everybody. Mm-hmm. sort of terrified into compliance to keep like the the group as a whole you know as many of them alive as possible with very little you know time to spare to care for how mm-hmm. any of them sort of individually were doing it's just sort of like it's just like a numbers game you know um and in in a way that i think draws some yeah. cool parallels to season 1 um you know in in terms of you know, Kane and Jaha and the sort of like reducing the population of the mm-hmm, Ark to mm-hmm. mathematics, you know, Abby and Octavia are really sort of filling that role in this episode. It's like, this is about, this is about maximum number of people surviving. And, you know, and later we can deal with like <laughs> our, you know, therapy bills. But like right now we need enough people to die to keep everybody, to keep like the, the entirety surviving, you know, and I, so I think that there's, I think there's that component of it. And I think that that, that's such a bleak and grim and kind of dehumanizing outlook and way to, you know, run a society that it makes sense that, you know, that what Octavia builds in the bunker is like a, you know, is like, season mm-hmm. one arc on steroids, you know, like, like the, everything that we, everything that is, that is grim and, and chilling and unsettling and scary and creepy and soulless about what we learn of like the pre-serious arc society times a billion because it's, you know, much more sort of overtly, because it's sort of meshed with this kind of mm-hmm. uh, grounder violence, you know, instead of just like shoving somebody out of the yeah, airlock, right, right. which is I violent, mean, like, but at least it's, it's clean, you know, no one's it's smearing like, no, things it's on their faces. Violence. It's violence, but they shoot it outside. So you, nobody has to look at it. You can kind of right. pretend it's not there a little bit more easily right. than sort of like wallowing around in it. Yeah. You know, like building your, your thrown out of skulls or whatever, like Octavia does. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. Permanent concrete blood stains, yeah. Well, and it's interesting. So we were so last night. Um, uh, there was a, a couple, of, a couple of people on Twitter, um, including Sachin, that we all kind of got into like a, a Twitter conversation about, and it started with Sachin answering somebody's question about, like, I think it kind of started as like a like a would you rather kind of comparing the Mount Weather draining the grounders blood to the cannibalism fighting pits, which I think is an interesting is an interesting comparison in a lot of ways. And we talked about this a little bit before, but like the idea of of like harvesting the bodies of a small group of people to use as a resource to sustain the larger group 
is something that has come up a couple different times in like in this show, like like bodies as mm-hmm. a resource, yeah. like human beings as a resource. Um, and something that I think is really interesting about the kind of juxtaposition between one crew and Mount Weather that I think you know, I think is part of why, and even with that, with like with the arc too, but like, like in Mount Weather, there's like, it's like about like passive complicity mm-hmm. versus active complicity. Like if you lived in Mount Weather, it would be really easy, I think, to benefit from, you know, this, this terrible act of violence that's being perpetuated by your society, even if you knew about it, which not all of them did, because mm-hmm. you don't have to look at it. You know, like they're, they're, they're other in, you know, capital O, other. They're not your people. You didn't know them. There's this whole kind of xenophobic, you know, coding of them as savages thing that happens. It's they're providing a resource that you need. And so they're not asking themselves the question that only Kane really articulates in the season two finale, which is like, why aren't you striking a deal to ask people to like donate a resource that mm-hmm. actually is like regenerable, you know? But like, I think it would be really easy to convince yourself mm-hmm, that you're still mm-hmm. like a really good person, <laughs> you know, like living in Matt Weather, you can sort of emotionally divorce from it, you know, like they have cake, they have books, they're happy, they have like this thriving little society. And, and even the people who know what's going on, Many of them, like some of them, like, you know, Maya and her family are really haunted by it. And many of them aren't, you know, like it's, it's really easy to draw that line. And I think the difference in the kind of inherent difference with one crew is it's not just that. And I think this is why, like you said, like, you know, there, there are many less disgusting ways to like package that Mm -hmm. food. They could have put all of it into a soup. You know, they could have put the people Mm -hmm. cubes in, into the vegetable broth and then like eat your soup and then it's just soup. But I think, I think there's something in that about the idea of what it does to you to be forced to look directly at it and then to like to not be able to escape looking the thing in the eye and then to continually choose it over and over and over again anyway that turns you into yeah. a different kind yeah, of person. Yeah. You know, it's like does that make sense? Like it's you're like everybody everybody in one crew not just when they eat, but when they're cheering on in the fighting pits and like, "Woo, yeah, murder him." Like they're they've they've collectively made a choice to be like actively enthusiastically complicit in this thing even after the end of the dark year when like like when the fighting pits are no longer food but they've been food like everybody has that trauma and yet still you know years after that like four years after the dark year the fighting pits are still like a celebratory thing that's like tied into this whole kind of like religious thing so it's something that they're like they've adopted voluntarily as like part of who we are as a society is that this is what we do for fun and we all go down and watch it you know so there's this sort of and and i think and kane being the first person who who points to that part of it by name like who points out like the problem isn't even just the things that we did in the dark year the problem is that we didn't learn anything from the dark year about you know 
having a different relationship mm-hmm. with the value yeah. of human life, you know, in a way where I think in Matt Weather, it's it's easy to convince yourself that you still are a person who believes in human life because you've kind of dehumanized those victims whose resources you're draining and you've kind of conditioned yourself to be like, well, they're not really – like, they're not us. And in one crew, it's like, no, that's you. Like, that's your brother that you're eating. That's your, like, neighbor or your wife or whoever who's in the fighting pits and you're still all – celebrating it like you're still all like no this is who like we mm-hmm. want to be this or at least this enough people are. feel that way that everybody else has is sort of like forced into silence and i think like i think that's yeah it's like i think the the sort of number of times that we get reminded of those scenes um you know that those like chunks of process process protein were people is really important you know both with the guy being like one of those people was my brother you know so he can't look at that lump and just be like, well, that's my protein source. You know, he's thinking like that was my brother. But then also with Nyla saying, I keep thinking of their right. faces in the kind of like emphasis on like on on faces and faces being a thing, you know, that is like very humanizing. When you look in someone's face, they are a particular individual. They're not just a body, you know. Um, and uh, right. Yeah. So I think that was that was very deliberate because it kind of drives home like the thing that. The thing that is necessary psychologically, you know, for the kind of like the the process or the jump that everybody has to make that that Abby is kind of the first one who is able to make. Um, and that's difficult in varying degrees and kind of has arrived at in varying degrees by different characters is that you have to make that sort of that mental leap from human beings being like human being meeting that like an individual person whose life has value for itself, you know, this kind of more like moral view of human life versus over over to human bodies, including your own, simply being sort of like biological machines that require certain kinds of inputs in order to keep mm-hmm. functioning. And that and that can be the source of sort of support and resources for you. So like not only do not only do the victims' bodies have to turn into mm-hmm. right. resources and to meet, you know, there's a kind of like psychological leap that you have to make from from person to to like food, right? Um, but then also there's a there, like part of that logic, and this is what Abby's saying, is that you have to look at yourself as like I am also a machine, you know, like my body is a thing that requires certain kinds of fuel. Mm-hmm. And, and the most important, like the thing that I have to do is I have to provide it with that kind of fuel and sort of like detach your emotional kind of moral, ethical feelings about your own biological humanness and what it requires of you from who you are, mm-hmm. you know? So there's this kind of like double movement. And I think so, so it not only requires you to dehumanize the people you're eating, it requires you to kind of dehumanize yourself. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the part that like, you can see Nyla struggles with that because she says, I think of their faces, you know, she can't dehumanize them because she recognizes Mm -hmm. the way that it's going to recoil on her. You know, that's the part that Kane can't sort of get over and can't recover from, you know, like the, why he's so angry at Octavia because because of the way that she like that that forcing everyone to do that again sort of like acts as a kind of double dehumanization and mm-hmm. there's this like really you know kind of reminds me 
of um, there's this really interesting moment in Robinson Crusoe um, where there's like this whole this whole subplot in Robinson Crusoe about he's very paranoid about cannibals all the time. Like he's he's just always terrified of cannibals. Um, and then it turns out that the indigenous people who are closest to the island that he's on, it turns out they've been coming to his island to engage in cannibalism while he's there. And so he has this whole thing about like he discovers he he sees that they were there and they he sees them eating people and he can't bring himself he thinks i have to go kill them and then he can't bring himself to do it and then he has this whole sort of like spiral about it for a long time and one of them one of the spirals is on the side of the sort of moral question of is it more wrong to murder them for doing something that they don't think is wrong because i think it's wrong or is it more wrong to let them do this thing that i think is wrong like is it, am I supposed to kill them for doing this evil thing? Or is killing more evil than the evil thing they're doing? So that's one of the spirals. And then the other spiral is, mm-hmm. he has this sort of like panic moment where he he starts thinking to himself, like he freaks himself out because he starts thinking, okay, well those cannibals, they look at me the way that I look at a goat. They look at me and they see food, just like I look at an animal and I see food. And he has this whole long spiral mm-hmm. about like that. We're basically all these like he sort of confronts these very arbitrary lines that he's been drawing for himself between like things you eat, things you keep as pets, you know, like human beings versus like food sources. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's this kind of like interesting way where he kind of he he has this moment where he kind of has to to admit to himself that um that from a certain perspective, you know, <laughs> maybe there's not that huge a difference between the way that we categorize, you know, like a cow as just like, look at that cow over there in the field. It's a thing that I will eventually kill and consume. Like it's a very quick and easy jump to looking mm-hmm. at any living being in those same terms, including a human being. And it's like really, you know, it's like he freaks himself out. But... um well, but I think that's the other, you know, the the sort of like the danger of those moments is that is there's a kind of like is the sort of internal transformation that has to happen for you to begin to look at the people around you and think to yourself, you know, those are my food stores. Those are those are my potential, you know, like those are potential supplies, as Abby puts it. Um those are mm-hmm. there's there's a weird way in which like you cannot simultaneously look at a person and see them as like a person, you know, as like as like your brother or whatever. And then also think to yourself, think of them as basically livestock. And there's the sort of like there's a there's this, all this sort of psychological trauma, but then also sort of like an ethical dilemma or trauma that comes from being able to make that flip. Well, I think, you know, I think that like you were saying about the Robbins and Krista thing, like I think e- even in like in real life, you know, we see like different cultures have different animals that they will and won't eat, either whether because mm-hmm. like they're like they're considered unclean or they're considered sacred or, you know, or we domesticate them as pets and other animals and other cultures are like, no, that's still an animal you can eat for food. So like even even on that level, like even sort of keeping like humanity out of the equation, like it's very 
I think it's very clear that like where those lines are is often to varying degrees subjective, you know, and based on, mm-hmm. on perspective. And I think the, the question that, that Abby articulates, and I think it makes sense having it come from her as both as the doctor and as the person who's kind of been presented to us a couple of times over the course of the season, um, as like a, a holder of arc knowledge of, of memories of what happened the last time, you know, there was a group of people who were faced with this choice and didn't make it, you know, that she's kind of, it makes sense to me why she feels like she has to kind of be thinking like 10 steps ahead, you know, like, like the question of like, of whether Cain eats the food or not has so much more weight than just, you know, like, is Cain going to be hungry later that day? You know, like the, like for her, it's (laughs) about like, there's, there's one component of it, which is if, if Cain, like if Marcus Cain, the individual human man doesn't eat this food and get, like if he's not getting 10% of his calories from protein, he'll be dead in a year. And for her, like, just be like, because of who he is, because of who he is as an individual, like he's a man that she loves. She, they're both of these people have already evidenced multiple times that they're willing to do all kinds of crazy shit to keep the other person alive. So the idea of Marcus dying as an individual is, is one outcome that's just not acceptable to her. You know, like she doesn't, he could virtuously starve to death, you know, like he could make a moral choice and then die. And she's like, I don't want you to do that. So that's one piece of it. It's just like him, the human being. But also, I think, you know, I think the piece, the idea that he's the key to getting everybody else to agree to do it, you know, that we see like the first time there's like a handful of people that get up and leave with him. And then the second time, nobody's eating, you know, like Mm -hmm. everyone's sitting there staring at their plates trying to figure out what the fuck they want to do. Until, you know, Octavia, you know, shoots people and then, and then Kane is like, okay, okay, I'll do it. Which I, I can't imagine. I don't think that was what Abby thought that she was going to do. I think that was Octavia putting kind of an Octavia spin on it. But, um, but Kane, Kane doing it, like Kane eating the people meet, you know, it both saves his own individual life, but it also kind of, reframes for the whole rest of the collective that like okay we trust this guy you know like we we trust his like if if he's gonna do this then like okay then we'll do it you know like people will like people will fall in line if it's something that they see him doing it kind of gives them a little bit of like not a moral out necessarily but it sort of makes it feel i think like ethically safer you know um so it's interesting, I think, and, and Abby, I think, knows that. And the mathematics of that is that even if it's only a handful of people out of each, you know, meal or each group or whatever who don't eat it and then starve to death, like that affects the numbers because then those will be people who, if they end up going into the fighting pits and, and die and go into the food supply, they're not sufficient nourishment anymore because they didn't have sufficient protein in their bodies. And so then they become just kind of like garbage bodies and then the food source is like depleting. So this kind of like doctor mathematics, this very kind of cold calculation of like, you know, to keep this whole group of 1,200 people alive for a year – 
you have to make everybody do it. It made sense to me that that's a calculation that comes from somebody who is a doctor whose job is often, you know, like sometimes doctors have to do, have to kind of clinically and emotionally distance themselves from things like your pain or your emotions in order to do the thing they have to do to save you, you know, and and that's why I think sometimes, you know, like sometimes doctors have like really unpleasant personalities, you know, like their job (laughs) is to keep you, you know, keep you alive using their brain and their science ability. And so sometimes they can't engage with you as an individual person because that's counterproductive to like the emotional distance they need to do to be able to like cut you open. If you had to, like if you couldn't turn off the part of you that sees and empathizes with the pain of every single person who comes across your operating table, you couldn't be a surgeon if you couldn't like flip that switch off and just focus on the task at hand. So I think it, you know, it feels to me like I get why Abby from her doctor mindset kind of goes into that place where she's like, you know, like all of you are my patient, essentially, you know, like the patient on the operating table is all of humanity is the entirety of one crew. And one facet of that is that she can't keep Kane alive unless Kane eats the stuff, you know, and she will risk anything to make sure that she doesn't lose him. But also, I think, you know, she's kind of working out of both sides of her brain at once. And I think the doctor side of her is basically like, this is the ugly thing that we have to do in order to keep, you know, to keep the patient alive on the table with as little damage as possible, which basically means like getting these people through this one year until the protein crops are picking up again. So I think, you know, it's it's really it's <laughs> it's very grim and I I think it gives us really important context for how badly she's you know, fucked up by the choices that she had to make and why that's potentially something that maybe is kind of implied maybe like this is the transition from over-medicating because uh, it's a way that she's treating chronic pain that started after Allie to over-medicating to like numb herself out. I think it's not necessarily made textual, but I wonder if potentially that's part of it of a component of it is that that the yeah. choices that she had to do and the and the person that she became because of the weight of this responsibility and this sort of thing that she shared with Octavia might also have been a facet in why it was so difficult for her to, you know, to kick the pills when she tried it before. So I don't know. I feel like that was implied when, you know, in the fact that she starts to explain to Clark that she started taking the pills after Allie and Clark says, you don't have to explain. And then she says, yes, she does. And then we get the flashback, which we know at least, you know, in that case, it was that flashback was Abby telling the story to Clark because Maddie says that she heard it later on. Right. So I feel like I, I do feel like it was, you know, at least strongly implied. Like, I, I think the the point there was supposed to be like her saying to Clark, like, you, I do have to explain because you have to understand that it wasn't just you know, the pain from from the ice bath, but it was also all this other stuff that happened, you know, and so so those all those things are kind of linked together. So to talk more about what Octavia did, because I think I think you're right about sort of Abby's motivations. And I definitely think like you know, obviously Abby like her plan 
was never for Octavia to start shooting people. <laughs> right, right. Um, that was the way that that Octavia sort of processed the warnings she was giving her in her own desperation. And, and, and you know, and obviously, like, Abby feels a huge amount of complicity in that because she's the one who is pushing and pushing and pushing Octavia for full compliance. But I think, you know, Octavia in the flashbacks is really, really interesting to me. Because, you know, we kind of see, like, even three years in, that was still very much more the Octavia that we mm-hmm. recognize from 502, you know, from from earlier seasons than yeah. Ladrena. Um, you know, she's still consulting, like, truly consulting with her sort of council of people with Cooper and Indra and Kane and Abby. And, and like, in the way that she's sort of, like, made up, you know, like, she looks so much younger in those flashbacks. Like yeah. Looks, and that's – and I think that's partly, like, makeup. But I think a lot of it is just Marie, you know, like, her physicality is completely different, you know, when she's, like, Blood Raina versus when, you know, she kind of, like, sheds that arm – the Blood Raina armor and, you know, she's, like, that more vulnerable Octavia. But I thought it was really interesting. Like, this is still the – you know, this is a moment at which – She's still in a place where, like, she desperately doesn't want to do this, you know? Like, when when Abby says, I think we all know what the solution is, like, you can tell, like, Octavia absolutely does not want to, like, she is so crushed that this is becoming necessary. And and she says to Kane, you know, give me another option. Like, tell me, tell me there's something else that I can do and I'll do it. You know, so I think it's one really interesting dynamic is sort of, in these flashbacks, is sort of, like, the process by which Octavia arrives at the point where she takes away choice, you know, so like the process at which she arrives at the version of Blood Raina who, who like really truly is like a tyrannical dictator, you know, who is sort of like, who is kind of denying anybody, any part of one crew, any sort of, individual autonomy in choosing what they do or what they do or don't participate in, you know? And so, like, I thought that was really, I thought that was really kind of striking, that contrast. Um, I guess I, I, I'm trying to figure out what what I think of the choices that Octavia does make in this episode. Because I think it's interesting in that up until she gets, you know, she shoots that guy at the table. She does feel to me like she's really very much sort of deferring to the what she's being told is best by her advisors, you know? Like like Kane objects to the cannibalism solution, but Abby explains very, you know, very sort of clearly like this is the problem there is no other solution if you don't do it you know we all starve and indra is also sort of like well we have a source the fighting pits you know so like we have like we actually have a complete solution in front of us that will work to solve the problem if we frame the problem as preventing everyone from starving over the course of 12 months you know and then you have kane who's sort of like Framing the problem is somewhat different where he's like, okay, well, like starvation is a problem, but then there's an additional problem, which is a sort of ethical or moral implications of eating people who are forced to fight to death and forcing people to eat people, you know, and Octavia kind of, she goes with the 
more practical problem with like the problem is sort of practically speaking, how do we keep people from starving to death? And the answer is that we eat the dead bodies that we have, you know, and we sort of see her go from attempting to persuade in that first scene to sort of like increasing levels of desperation and force in the second scene. And yeah. And I'm like, I think like the, the sort of like sticking point for me is would it have been possible, like, if Abby had stood up and said to that cafeteria full of people exactly what she said to Octavia, that if you don't eat, like, just, like, laid it out. Like, if you don't eat, you will starve. And when you die, you won't, you know, like, you won't provide any nourishment, which means that people, even people who didn't make the same choice you're making will also die of starvation because you're denying them sustenance. So, like, if she, if Abby had sort of laid out the, like, like, you think you're making a choice for just yourself, whether to eat or not, but by making that choice, you're actually affecting and in some ways taking away choices from other people down the line. Would that have been sufficiently persuasive? See, that's, I was having, this is, was something that we were talking about, um, I was talking about with Sachin yesterday in that conversation we were having on Twitter because, like, what I think the most the most direct correlation I feel like of other things we've seen in the show where this exact same thing happened was the difference between Kane and Jaha's culling and Abby's version of the culling. Like the Kane yeah. and Jaha's original culling was basically like we're going to just quietly shut off air to a sector of the ship that has enough people in it sleeping that will cut down our oxygen. So, so like no one has any agency. Yeah. They're going to call it an accident. Yeah. The whole thing's going to be secretive. They've picked, you know, sector 17 or whatever it is because it has the right number of bodies again, like the right mm-hmm. amount of oxygen bodies as physical resource for the larger whole. And, and Abby is the one, you know, who who basically takes it to the people and tells them the truth and says, here's where we're at. This is our problem, you know, and because that's what Jake would have done, you know, like put it to everybody. See, like, let's all get our heads together. Who's got a better solution? And so I do think that it is, I think it is noteworthy that Abby did not do here the same thing that we've seen her do, like when faced with, you know, with this in another situation the only reason i can think of for that that feels like it makes kind of like consistent character sense for abby is because i think that if she said that like i think if she if she was like like let's make this volunteer like maybe people will sacrifice themselves or maybe people will maybe at least then maybe like 90 percent of them will choose to do it and some still won't but like maybe it'll be enough trying to kind of have that honest conversation I think that the fear that Cain will be one of those people who still chooses to sacrifice himself makes her feel like, no, we have to, like, I think, I, I wonder if it's, if it's not that Cain is the X factor here, you know, like that Cain is a person who's. Yeah, which I would buy, but that's also like. But it's not explained. Like I'm, I'm just head cannoning. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 yeah. I know, no. And I, yeah. and I, and I could see that, but it also like, that's like deeply unethical <laughs> yeah no no for real yeah i i mean i do i think um i and it's also so here's something else that i think something that we don't see in the flashbacks that i think is 
noteworthy in its absence is as far as I can see, we do not see any pills. Like Abby's not uh, like, like I, we know that from the beginning, like she's got, you know, like the pills are a thing as early as season as episode 502, because it comes up a little bit with Jackson, you know, she wants him like, she's not like, like addicted to this current level, but she's still like, taking more of them than Jackson is necessarily comfortable with um, and going into a little bit of withdrawal when she's, when she's handcuffed in the farm with, uh, with Kane and she's not here. So, so either this is a period of, of sobriety or she's not as heavily addicted yet, but either way, like we're, we're not, I think meant to think that anything about the choices that she's making here are shaped by, you know, kind of a, lack of cognitive function caused by addiction. You know, like, like she's, she's thinking like a brilliant, yeah, like thinking like a doctor. And so, yeah, so I do feel like, I think there's something interesting to, to parse in the, in the flip. And I, I, the more I think about the more, I think, I think that the fact that she says we don't have a choice and he says we always have a choice, Abby, you should know that. What I'm wondering is if potentially it's like another piece of the kind of season one Kane Abby kind of inversion parallels that's happening that like he does the thing that Abby would ordinarily have done, which is he gets up and says, here's where we're at. Everybody has to decide this for themselves. Honesty, clarity, like, let's say the thing out loud, but like, I'm not doing it. And and gets up and walks out. I think in some ways, like, that's more the parallel to, you know, Abby releasing Jake's recording and basically telling people, like, here's the problem that we're facing. And, you know, and what they were going to do was sort of, like, make this kind of forced and secret. And I'm saying, like, let's get it out in the open. You know, so I think that there's um, – I think there's a flip happening there where I – what I wonder is if – is if the fear that Jaha expresses and Kane expresses a little bit too in, um, in the culling, which is the idea that like the public is going to riot and that's going to undo any good that you think that you've done by trying to kind of go public with this information and like engage people collectively in like democratically finding a solution. It's like, no, they're going to panic and they're going to stampede. And then you're going to have fucked up everything. Like it felt like that was very much, I think the perspective that they were coming from this time. So I think I, I like it as a narrative inversion where we're seeing that they've been so kind of changed and shaped by this trauma that they're much more of the mindset that Kane and Jaha were in in the beginning. And Kane is the one who's more sort of where Abby is, where he's like, we can't, you know, we can't just make people's decisions for them and not tell them. So I think I like it as kind of a coming full circle, but it also does feel a bit, I guess not out of character because, because I do feel like, you know, I think she's, she's thinking very clinically and I get that. Um, but I, I hear what you're saying in that, like, there's a part of me that wanted somebody to present that as an option, even if they were like, oh, no, here's why we can't do that. Like, here's why that wouldn't work. But just to have somebody say out loud, like, what if we were honest with people? Yeah. I mean, like, what if 
It's not clear if everybody understands fully the stakes of choosing not to eat when they don't, you know, like, and, and Octavia does try to persuade first, you know, she goes out and sort of says, like, you don't understand, like, you have to do this. This is what we do. They sacrifice their life for all of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, she tries a bunch of different kinds of persuasion, but the one thing that that doesn't ever, like, get said as far as we know to everyone in the room is, like, is like there are there are long term repercussions to other people's exactly. lives, right? Right. For your choice about what you do with your own, right? And like, so, here's how the math works out. Yeah, exactly. Which is the thing. Which is which is what Abby uses to convince Octavia. You know, like Octavia is again very very resistant. Like she's sort of horrified, and and like you can see, kind of like a little bit crushed by the idea of you know like making not being a cannibal illegal <laughs> right. um, and forcing to do something that pe- people to do something they don't want to do, you know, like she doesn't want to do it. And, and Abby is the one who's like saying that it's necessary. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's tricky because I think on the one hand, those flashbacks, you know, I, like I, I feel like they worked in terms of like, I completely understand why Octavia felt like it was a matter of life and death necessity that everybody comply, you know, and and how she sort of reached that point where she was like shaking and crying and devastated, but felt like she had to like kill people if that's what it took in order to make sure that everybody complied with um with cannibalism. But I guess I guess for me, like, I'm ready to sort of say that that logic is fucked up, but I don't actually think it's necessarily wrong. You know, like, I don't think it's necessarily, like, wrong in that situation to say, like, we are in a position where, <laughs> where like, cannibalism is, like, kind of the only option. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong you know like like Abby's position is necessarily wrong to say like and also in this in this closed like the problem is we are in a closed system and in this closed system the choices that that each each individual person's choice about what they do with their bodies has very real repercussions potentially deadly ones for other people's lives so in that sense it's kind of true that there is no such thing as an individual choice that you are making for your own body or your own body only. Because in making that decision, you are, your choice does affect and, and, and potentially like take away someone else's dis- choice to live, right? Like right. you deciding to starve yourself to death, the, there, like there's, there's an element of that decision which can threaten other people's choice to not starve you know what Mm -hmm. i mean so Mm -hmm. like it's not actually as simple as you choose to live eat or you choose not to eat that's actually not like that is genuinely not really the choice although that's kind of like the oversimplified choice that seems to be presented you know and that's not to say that there are that that there isn't like equally arguments on on kane's side where it's like yes but you know the act of eating another living human being particularly someone who was killed who who didn't like volunteer to die to be food, you know, who right. was like killed by being forced to fight to the death in these pits. Like 
there there is also a, a valid opposite side of that to say like that there's there's something inherently wrong about you know about eating the body of someone who wasn't volunteer who didn't you know who was who was sort of killed without their who was murdered you know what i mean or who who didn't agree to this so yeah so but i think i'm ready to be i, I i'm not ready to be on Octavia and Abby's side. Like I see, I see that there is like merit to their side, but I guess like the place where I get tripped up with Octavia is, you know, it's like one of those things where I'm like, I feel like you have to make every single effort to convey to people the realities and complexities of the choices that they're making before you start shooting them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, that's, that's a level of taking away just like that's coercion through fear. Right is a kind of taking away choice that crosses a line because, you know, because again, you're not, you're not saying like, I'm giving you the full information about the implications of the choice before you make them. I guess she is literally just saying like, no, you actually don't have a choice. Like if you don't do this, then you just won't exist anymore and then we'll eat you. So yeah. Yeah. And I, and I feel <laughs> I like. I talk myself around in a circle, but whatever. Yeah. No, I'm with you. <laughs> well, and I, and I think that, you know, I think the part, um, that one of the moments that I that I found extremely hard to watch. I mean, I think that you know, I mean, the the acting in that cafeteria scene was just killer because just everyone. I mean, everyone's faces are so broken and traumatized. Like everyone is just so shattered by this thing that they're watching. You know, and Marie like totally sells it. Like watching her, like she's like sobbing as she's pulling the trigger, but she also can't stop. You know, um, but watching Abby, I think realize the the accidental ramifications of like, like watching the extra step too far that Octavia has taken it. And, and that moment, the moment of realizing that, you know, that sort of like I've created a monster kind of moment, you know, I think is really that, that was one of the things that I found the most interesting just in terms of like, you know, of what we know when we come back to them when the bunker opens in 504, um, of how, you know, of how Kane and Abby's relationship with Octavia has has reached a point where Kane is willing to sacrifice himself and, you know, and basically, like, calls everybody out. You know, like, the the speech that he gives in the fighting pit makes a lot more sense if you – now that we have the context of the fact that like from the beginning, he was the person who was telling her, you know, I don't want us to be these people. I don't want us to be these people. And she's kind of like, okay, give me literally any other suggestion. And he doesn't have one. He just knows I don't want us to be these people, you know? And, and I think that, that the fact that he doesn't have an alternative, like there isn't, there isn't anything that Kane can propose that is as effective and less horrible. Like there just isn't, there's no other option on the table for, for where they're at at that time that he can present to her. Yeah. And so just that everyone slowly starve to death is not actually virtuously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like you'll feel really good about yourself until everyone dies, but you know, and which, which also like, which, which fits for Kane. It's like, he's, he's thinking about it in terms of like that sort of thorny, 
consistently cyclical kind of conversation that he and Abby have a lot from different perspectives about like survival versus deserving to survive, survival versus mm-hmm. getting our humanity back. And they're both mm-hmm. valid points of view. And there's never an easy answer. Like there's never a solution that's like we can have both of these things effortlessly with no problem. You know, but I think that um I think that Kane, like that sense of just sort of like that resignation, like that that kind of sense of having like just given up that he really has when we kind of come back to him again, you know, in the fighting pit, that that sort of moral fatigue, it makes so much sense when you think about four years of three times a day, trucking down to the mess hall, eating a cube of human meat, you know, watching his relationship with Octavia (laughs) deteriorate, you know, like this must be the rift that came between them. Like this was the crack that grew into a rift that led to them becoming enemies. Like it started there. It started in that moment where he feels forced to pick up, you know, this blood stained cube of human meat from that guy's tray and like shove it down his throat, which PS is like not to poke fun at him, but it is, it is a tiny bit hilarious to watch that scene and think about like, Poor Henry Ian Cusick, who is, like, a hardcore vegan and, like, animal rights activist and, like, doesn't eat meat at all. I'm thinking, like, like how like how did he get through that without barfing at those props like that poor man? I don't think he was feigning any of that distress. I don't think Ian was acting at all. I think he was like, I hate this. I hate my job. This is the worst day. But, um... <laughs> Uh, but anyway, but so, um, so that, so the version of Cain that we meet when, you know, when the bunker door opens, who's just run out of steam. Like he doesn't, he, he can't help Octavia. He doesn't think he can save Abby, except maybe by like trying to sacrifice himself for her. Everything has completely like slipped out of control. And it's not until he kind of gets, a little bit of a fresh start by like, you know, connecting with Dioza and realizing like, maybe there is a way for peace. Like maybe there is like that. He kind of starts to like get his, get his sense of agency back. But that, that sort of broken version of him that we meet at the beginning of the season, it makes a lot of sense that we know now that everything that happened, that kind of created what one crew became like that created this, culture and this society that from the first day he was the person who was trying to trying to find a different solution trying to point Octavia in a different direction but but couldn't couldn't come to them with like here's the thing we can do instead and now he has that you know like now I think that he feels like you know like now there are options he's you know but in the in the bunker there wasn't you know and I think that for Abby I think not just even in terms of of how it might have been a factor in in pushing her into sort of medicating more and more and more heavily and feeling more and more dependent on it as a way to kind of silence those thoughts in her head and kind of numb herself out a little bit, but also her willingness to and and kind of I think need to get away from Octavia, you know, get out of that place. I think it makes a lot more sense. But I also feel like, you know, something that before the dark year flashbacks, like before we kind of saw how it all played out, something that I'd kind of been trying to clock as we went along 
with all the little like every time it came up in conversation, every time anybody referenced it was trying to figure out, you know, whatever the thing was that happened, like who was actively complicit in it and who was passively complicit in it. You know, like who, who does Octavia feel was like in it with her and who does Octavia feel left her holding the bag. And so I think that it was interesting seeing that like Kane tells Octavia, like, I let this happen. You know, like he he views himself as having been like an active participant. Like I helped you get other people on board. Like I did this thing. You know, and Octavia's perception that Indra didn't do enough to protect her from having to carry this burden alone. That I thought was really interesting because it's in this episode that we see Indra kind of being the person who first who kind of creates the beginning of the framework of how it's enshrined as like a devotional practice almost like how it becomes something that has this kind of quasi religious thing to it. And my only, <laughs> my only beef with that is it felt like if you look at, one crew willingly eating this food because, you know, like the Omangona Osun thing, like it's become, you know, a religious practice. It's like a, there's a sort of spiritual, cultural, you know, thing to it. It, instead of just sort of being like, this is a thing that we're doing because we have to take in 10% of our calories from protein or the entire society is going to die. It has a weird, uncomfortable kind of whiff to it of like, some of the stuff that we've talked about in season four about like grounders being coded as like too dumb to understand science. So you have to kind of like wrap mysticism around it, you know, like, yeah, like yeah. if you, if you, if you look at it too carefully, it has a little bit of like, if we make it a religious ritual, they'll do it. Whereas if we explain to them how protein compounds work in the bloodstream, they won't. <laughs> Where I'm just kind of like, yeah. I don't like, and and I'm which I'm sure was like not intentional, but it just. But I think coming on the heels of the Becca Cadigan flashback, um, and some of my some of our like our our ongoing kind of flame questions, I was like, I just feel a little bit like this is another example of. Things in this show become treated as superstitious or religious or mystical or enshrined in like kind of quasi religious cultural practices when they're just kind of like basic science and math that <laughs> that, that is like a weird running trope that I think this show is like happens a lot, you know. So this was like another one of those. But I but but then that being said, I think the difference this time is you could argue that in this situation it is Octavia who needs it to become a kind of quasi-religious cultural practice because she's oh, the one yeah. who's kind of making herself Caesar instead of it being sort of a like grounders are too dumb to know <laughs> how protein works yeah um, no for sure i mean i think that's definitely it and i think like it was clear clear among the resistors that they were pretty well aware of exactly you know like like the guy that she first confronts is sort of like she's like you have to eat he's like yeah no i i i get it <laughs> you know he's yeah, like, yeah yeah it's not that i don't understand the situation i'm just telling you 
I can't eat a chunk of my brother. Right. You know, so um so it definitely in this case it definitely feels like like it's it's sort of Octavia and her her leadership, whatever, who who sort of hit on the the strategy of like basically like how do we how do we make this propaganda to convince people that this is sort of something that they will do. And what they hit on is this kind of like weird sort of, it feels like an amalgamation of like, cause it's not, I don't think, I don't, I don't really think that Amongonason is like mystic mythologized or like, I, I don't think anybody actually thinks it's mystical. You know what I mean? But right, it's more yeah. like the power of like, if we ritualize it, if we make it a ritual that everyone is sort of perforce, doing together then the kind of like collective complicity means that everyone you know what i mean like there's a kind of like cover sort of ethical and psychological cover that comes from this is just what we all do and we all have to do it you know and i think that she's kind of like counting on that and then if you kind of take that and you sort of and you package it in a way where you can you know you can like you can give people something to believe in basically is what it is if you can tell people, like, look, you're, you know, it's like, it's okay that you're eating human beings' flesh because what you're really doing is honoring their sacrifice. Then I think that kind of gives people, like, the people who are, like, who don't want to die, who don't want to starve, but who also don't want to, like, be a cannibal. Right. It kind of gives those people something to latch onto where they can be like, oh, okay, 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 cool. Okay, I'm not a cannibal. I'm just honoring their sacrifice of their lives so that I may live. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's less of a, this one feels less of a sort of like, they're too dumb to understand if Abby explained it. So we have to do this other things and more of a kind of like, like it's, it's a coerced and forced thing, but then also the sort of systems of belief that come up around it, give people a story to tell themselves about their own behavior that they can live with. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think that it's, it's like, this is how, by making it part of like something something that defines us as a culture, like like makes one crew who we are, is that we participate in this right together collectively, and it both sort of like nourishes our bodies and it also creates a sense of unity that then it allows you to feel like you're participating in the life of the community instead of having to interrogate like you know like Kane says them in fighting pit like instead of having to kind of like look at who you become individually like to look at your own choices and evaluate them like i think he's the, the place where i where i think that he's wrong in this episode is that he's trying to he, he's trying to sort of wiggle out of having to be part of the collective responsibility for the collective, you know? But I yes, think where exactly. he's... He's I trying to he's, say this is only... This is entirely and only an individual choice. Yeah. And that's the part that... He, yeah. Which is not correct. Which is not it's correct. actually but, not. Yeah, but where yeah. he's right is you can't not look at your own. Like, you can't... You, like, you you exactly. can't yeah. remove the part of of this where you are where you have convinced yourself that you only exist as one cog in this collective wheel and that mm-hmm. then you don't bear any individual responsibility for your individual choices. So it's like exactly. there's a like there's yeah. a middle ground where you are both 
a a person who is obligated to the whole, and that requires making hard, ugly choices. And you are an individual who has to look at your own individual morals and ethics and behavior. And that means you have to make some like hard, ugly choices. You know, it, it makes me wonder a little bit like people like Jackson, who we haven't seen much of yet of like how it's like, it doesn't seem to have changed him, you know, in the same way. Like he's, he's very recognizably Jackson when he's treating Octavia. And I was like, Oh, you're the only person who's so happy that she's not dead. <laughs> like, look at how it was so pure and cute. He's like, you had us all so worried. And I'm like, Oh, so like Jackson stayed Jackson, you know, like Jackson, he's yeah. a doctor. He's figured out some way to kind of thread that needle that I, I would. I don't know if we're going to get a chance to unpack it, but it interests me because it feels like everybody else kind of picked one or the other. You I know, I want to ask Suchin about it again. Like, okay, like, can you walk us through? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. How Jackson views all of these events? Exactly. Like, I can yeah, see Jackson. Like Jackson is so so logical about it. Like I could see Jackson like just being like, yeah, okay, we got to eat some people for a year because we need you know a certain amount of protein in our diet. Like, go for it. I just what I wonder is how Jackson justifies. Octavia, you know, shooting people. <laughs> that's well, right. That feels like a little less. Like, yeah, like the, the part, the part where he seems to have like genuine. I mean, he's like he's drunk the Kool Aid a little bit because he has the whole like, like it's time to plan for succession. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So you, so you're in this. You know stuff. Like you're, you know. Um, but yeah. But so I wonder. So it feels like everybody, you know, everybody in that bunker has been sort of faced with having to reconcile. Those two, you know, kinds of, of ethics, you know, the, the ethics of mm-hmm. how you participate in and con- contribute to the collective whole and how you kind of act as a moral check on yourself. And, and almost everybody, um, in one crew with like a handful of exceptions has chosen to like subsume themselves entirely into this collective, you know, and mm-hmm. then, and yeah. then you have like, Kane as like the one kind of last man standing who is like, please also like look at yourselves as individuals, you know, and mm-hmm. ask yourself also those questions. But I think the thing that I, you know, the thing about Octavia and Octavia's role in all of this that I, that I hope is addressed in a way that feels satisfactory is like, for Octavia, well, like when she says, like, I, you know, like, I give all of myself to you, like, they gave all of themselves to us, you know, Octavia also has, like, subsumed herself entirely into the collective in a way. Like, she also has, like, become one crew, like, like immersed herself into, you know, everything that I do has to be for, like, the greatest good of the greatest number of these people because they're my people and I feel ownership of them. But also, she is the individual who benefits most from everybody else sacrificing themselves for the collective. And so what does that say about who she's going to become? Like, like in a world where there's nobody to be kind of, like, doing homage to her, like in a world where she had to go back leading by democratic council instead of by like royal proclamation. Is that, is that part of her that was able to try to kind of balance both of those things? Like, is that gone? 
Well, yeah, and I think this is where, like, the Octavia in the flashbacks, like, the, the Octavia we see in the flashbacks, those experiences, they explain a lot of things about Octavia. They explain, they, they explain why she is so, why she feels so much like we have to keep pushing for everything to be okay in the mm-hmm, end, because mm-hmm. if it's not, it means that everything that I did was for nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. We, and we understand why, we understand now, like, a little bit more, the sort of level of of sort of sacrifice of her soul that she had to make, that mm-hmm. she's, like, desperately trying to justify. But I feel like there is a really stark difference between the Octavia that we saw making choices in the flashbacks where where she was sort of pushed over the edge to a point where she did she she turned to sort of like this very very violent coercion that essentially took away the the sort of choice of the people who were trying to resist her and forced them to do something out of desperation that they wouldn't have otherwise done mm-hmm but you know we know why she did that because she genuinely believed like because because Abby convinced her if everybody doesn't comply then we're all dead you know like so she had a very sort of rational reason there was at least like a genuine belief on her part that like if i don't do this we all die you know like versus the bladrena who put bellamy and indra and gaia in the fighting pit Mm-hmm. because that was the only, like, and she said to Indra, give me another choice, give me another way. And Indra's like, if your goal is to force everyone to follow you again, then this is your only way. Like, your choice is basically, like, give up your power, you know, like, accept that, like, that your factions are splitting and some people are going to stop being loyal to you, or do this thing that you say you don't want to do. And she decided to put them in the ring because she didn't want to sacrifice, you know, one crew. But really, like, she didn't want to sacrifice her position. And the same thing with burning the farm, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she burned the farm in order to force – in order to basically, like, like, okay, so, like, they – the farm means that everybody has an option, that people – that they don't have to do what she wants them to do, which is march to the valley and have this war – they can stay there if they want to. So she burns the farm in order to take away that choice. So there's a sort of like, there's a there's something that tracks in terms of like, you know, in the flashbacks, if this is the moment when sort of Octavia kind of like turned a corner to being like, this is her, this is her move as a leader. Like what right, she does right. is she sort of like enforces her will by removing any other option. But like there's also a stark difference in that, in what she's protecting. And I think in the flashbacks, she's genuinely, at least in her mind, she's genuinely protecting the the most lives that she. Oh can. yeah, yeah. And in and in with burning the farm, she absolutely was not. You know, she was protecting. I don't even know what she's protecting her her own sort of ambitions, I guess, or her own goal. Like she wants the valley. Yeah. Well, and she's-, she's decided that that's that's what she's going to get. And in order to get it, she needs to force everyone to come with her. And so that's what she does, you know? So, yeah. She's like, well, she's protecting. Yeah. I I think she's protecting the structure of the society of one crew in a way that leaves her still 
Like, were, were, were they still need her? Were they still can't survive without Bloodraina? Because it isn't, you know, like, it doesn't, it doesn't help anybody. And that's what I was, you know, like, what I was saying before about, like, what it, what I, what I need someone to say to her is, like, like, I, I want her to have to kind of confront the inversion of doing this horrible thing that takes away people's choice and agency because of the risk of starvation versus choosing mm-hmm. the risk of starvation to preserve the power that she got from the first time they faced starvation. Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. level yeah. of hypocrisy like needs to get unpacked. Of, yeah, exactly. Like you are literally wielding the threat of starvation uh-huh. against people. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in exactly. Order to justify what you did to save them from starvation earlier. Like it's right. like Right, you built this whole you built your whole empire on the on the guilt and shame and terror that was created around like the dark year, like the first real, you know, the first sort of starvation crisis. And you'd rather manufacture a second starvation crisis even if it means dark year 2.0 rather than accept the fact that Blood Raina's time is up, you know, like that, that your, that the need for you to rule in that particular totalitarian way was finite, you know, and that's the piece that like, that I, and I hope that that becomes something that, you know, that somebody, you know, I mean, in a perfect world, I would love for this to be a conversation that she has out at some point with Kane. I don't know if we'll be that lucky, but like, you know, or, or Miller or Nyla even, you know, or, um, or Indra, but like somebody who was down there and watched her kind of become this person and now is having to see, you know, the sort of increasingly unhinged things that she's doing that threaten to put everybody right back there. You know, like if they lose the valley, like if her people, I mean, and I don't know that I, know that that's what's going to happen but like like in a world like from her perspective like in in world in universe of the show you know if 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 she loses like if mccreary and you know and deals and all them if they keep the valley and her people are you know destroyed they're out of food again like they finished mm-hmm. the rations and they don't have a farm so like once again <laughs> they're gonna be starving and there's gonna be writing like, like you know he says you killed your people you yeah. killed your people Anything. yeah I think, you know, it's it's interesting because Kane frames her as the devil in this episode. And we get that last shower is like, I want to keep the devil out of the garden. And so there's like, you know, the, the kind of like intensification of 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 framing Octavia as like Satan. And um there is an interesting, like to go back to Paradise Lost, uh like on a like this is this is hardcore English nerd shit. Like this isn't <laughs> even like, you know, Garden of Eden Apple stuff. This is like, let's talk about poetic techniques mm-hmm. um <laughs> so if you read if you read paradise lost there's this signature um mode of both language and logic that satan uses in paradise lost um called chiasmus and chiasmus is um a rhetorical figure or like a sort of syntactical figure in which you have the the sort of terms in two halves are a sentence of are reversed. So there's this really famous line, like one of the most compact and famous examples of this um, is when uh, Satan says, I think in book one or two, he says, this is close to a quote, but slightly paraphrased. Um, the mind in its own place, is it the mind is its own place. And in my mind, I make a hell of heaven, 
a heaven of hell. Oh, uh, yeah, I've heard that. Yes. Yeah, so the chiasmus there is the flip of hell and heaven. So the first half will make a hell of heaven and then flip around a heaven of hell. So like the the sort of demonic demonic logic, the way the sort of satanic like mode what Satan does in Paradise Lost is he he sort of is constantly trying to turn one thing into its opposite. So like in that case what he's saying is like, you know, God kicked me out of heaven and into hell, you know, and this is supposed to be punishment, but like you know, jokes on him, like, I'm just going to decide. I'm going to make, like, hell is my heaven now, and heaven is my hell. So everything in the other places he says, good be thou my evil, you know? So, like, now good is evil, evil is good. He does that when he when he's tempting Adam and Eve. The one thing that he does is he kind of tries to flip around what's choice. Like, he tries to tell, he tries to tell them that God took away all of your choice. So like, the God is God is wrong because he doesn't allow you to do anything because he made this one rule. Like, he he's like he wouldn't let you be free because he made this one rule that you couldn't eat from this tree. And by taking away your, you know, like saying you can't eat from this tree, he took away your choice. And so what you should do, you should have choice. You should be free. So what you should do is eat from this tree that he forbade. And so, like, the logic there is basically – so the idea is that – that in fact, the truth is that in fact, God God made the one rule about the tree because in order for human beings to have free will, in order for their choice of obedience to be a choice, he has to give them something they aren't allowed to do. He has to give them something that is against, they have to give them a rule that they can break. So the rule that they're told not to break exists in order to give them freedom is the idea. It exists in order to give them choice. He has to give them something they can either choose to do or not to do. And what Satan does, the temptation in Paradise Lost is Satan says, convinces Eve that by giving, by making that rule, God took away choice. And by breaking it, she would be claiming her freedom. So he makes, he makes Eve believe she doesn't have a choice where she does. And she does have a choice where she doesn't, basically. And so, so there's this really interesting way I think is like where, like there's a lot of the, the Satan of Paradise Lost in, in Octavia and the way that, like that, there's almost like there's like a, like a chiastic logic to this, well, like what you're describing with the starvation thing, where it, like it started out being she had to do, you know, she, she was, she sort of crossed this line that was this humongous line for her. In order to, like, she had to kill people in order for them to live. That was true in the bunker, right? Like, she had to kill. And there's a chiasmus kind of there, too. You have to, like, life equals death and death equals life. You know, so she had to kill people in order for the most people to live. She had to kill people in order to, she had to sort of destroy in order to save people from the threat of starvation. And then the flip comes, you know, later on when she burns the garden, burns the hydro farm in order to take away people's choice about how they can live. And so she sort of like like creates the threat of starvation to take away a choice in order to force them into a certain situation where prior to that she had had to sort of like take away some choice in order to like save them. Does that make sense? So there's a yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. like hmm. there's a way in which like what she's doing over and over and even in that first move where she sort of where she kind of like crosses that line and like instead of just sort of explaining in more and more detail, like, look, like, let me explain to you the choice that you're making, what its implications are and and like the and and make sure that you understand that your free choice not to eat, your free choice to starve is actually also 
potentially condemning other people to starvation who didn't make that choice. So your choice is taking away other people's choice. Rather than kind of making laying that all out, she's like, I'm going to take away that choice. You know, so there's a kind of like, there's a bunch of different ways where you have Octavia in particular, and some other characters too, but Octavia in particular sort of flipping around or trying to redefine what is a choice and what isn't in ways that are advantageous to her rather than that are true and trying to sort of redefine what's good and what's bad according to what she needs those things to mean rather than what's necessarily true. So yeah, it's interesting. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, one of the things that I, that I really wonder about just, you know, knowing like, you know, we have, we have two episodes left of the season. It's obvious, like, you know, that's, and they're going to be largely, you know, sort of battle focused. So, you know, how much I think of, of this kind of resolution and unpacking we get now versus how much, you know, happens in season six, if at all, is kind of up in the air. But I, but I am interested in like, what I don't want, like I think what I think would be like the worst case scenario would be for like if Octavia wins or, you know, or if she doesn't win, but like she survives with the sort of the group of like, you know, if, if whatever, whatever group of, of our heroes and protagonists and characters that like survive and start their new life, whatever, if it includes Octavia in a leadership capacity or not, and there's no kind of reckoning with the the way that she's kind of reframed reality to support what she needs it to be, you know, kind of going forward. I think that that I think would be a mistake, you know, and I think um, and I and I'm and I'm hopeful, like, I want to be hopeful that we that we can get that because I did feel, you know, at the beginning of season four, I was so (laughs) I was so grumpy that there was no um, I didn't feel like the Jaha, like immediately as they were kind of coming out of the city of light, that the finger being pointed at Jaha for being the person who led them there. I was like, mm, what's all this we business, Kane? You know, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Why are you, like, helping share this burden with him? You came, you were, like, the 500th guy in the City of Light. Like, this is, he started yeah, this, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, some of them you can let go by, Marcus. You don't have to take on everybody's problems. But I did feel like over the course of season four, something that became interesting in a couple different ways and and that I maybe wish we'd even gotten more of was seeing Jaha trying to assimilate back into that group as just a civilian and not the leader you know and like that that was that was the thread of that Jaha story in season four that was really interesting to me was him sort of having to be like what is my role now you know and moments where he tries to take charge and somebody is like "Mm, you're not the boss anymore you know or like (laughs) you know um or being like floated in his mattress in the middle of the lake where it's like okay we're like we're not gonna like kill you but we are gonna take every opportunity to get a little like passive aggressive revenge just to remind you how bad you fucked up you know but then also the fact that like he had this knowledge from when he was the chancellor about you know Cadigan in the bunker and things like that, um, being able to like kind of give you know leadership advice to Clark, their kind of team up, you know, like so. so There's a lot in it that I thought they found interesting things for him to do that kind of tapped at this uncomfortable, not super stable position he found himself in 
where he used to be the leader, he's not anymore because of the thing that he did and the terrible destructive impact that it had and how he almost ruined everything. But they let him live and they took him back and now he's kind of like, who the fuck am I? You know, so I think that's Mm -hmm. something along those lines for like a, you know, a deposed Octavia who's kind of allowed to be back in the group but isn't in charge anymore really wrestling with what that means um and who who would she be if she could kind of take off and let go that kind of that mantle and burden of leadership but also you know how i think addictive it became for her to have that power unquestioned and how painful it is for her now anytime somebody looks at her and is basically like uh you super fucked up yeah yeah and again i mean like another sort of like overlap with the the devil satan thing is like satan ultimately like his what was after his power you know like his Mm -hmm. beef was yeah he wanted (laughs) he didn't think it was fair that god was like the ultimate authority in heaven and he wanted Mm -hmm. to sort of rise up and seize power and the reason why you know, he can't sort of let it go. He can't let God win is because he can't accept that uh, that he truly is like sort of lost that stat. Like there's another line where he says like better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. feels very – that's another one that I kept sort of occurring to me after, you know, when, when Octavia burned the farm and is forcing, forcing everyone to march across the, you know, the desert is kind of like that like – <laughs> like either I'm going to be queen where I want to be or everyone dies sort of right mentality that's one of the very compelling arguments for the sort of speculation of like you know is Octavia going to die this season and I and I've gone back and forth I feel like at the moment I'm I'm leaning towards I don't think that she is but it is the idea that she would choose death rather than not being blood reina anymore feels like a choice we're going to watch her have to make. And then the question is just, does she or does she not? But I feel like, yeah. I think we're going to, I think we're going to see her hit a point where like, you know, like, like if she's losing, like if, if there's, they end up in a place where she has to choose between, you know, I surrender, like I give up my power and become like, like a prisoner, like a hostage, or like a nobody, or all my people die, what do I want to mm-hmm. do? Yeah. Yeah. So, outside of flashbacks, other things are happening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. So, um, I I had some issues with Clark and Maddie this episode. Uh-huh. Me too, me too. Quite frankly. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, this was, we both, um, we both hit a little bit of a wall <laughs> this week. Um, <laughs> to say, to put it lightly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, you know, we've been, we've been really enthusiastic about a lot of this season, you know, up until, you know, this point, I was like very much like, this is my favorite season. I love everything that's happening. The things that have been quibbles for me have been relatively small. And a lot of them are like addressed in the next episode. So I'm kind of like, I don't really want to hold, like, hold on to this stuff necessarily, like feeling good about it. And I think the place where I hit with this episode was, um, and, and I'm like, 
And I'm still willing for like a lot of these things could totally turn around. But I, I think, you know, I, um, for me, where I hit uh, a kind of stumbling block in this episode that I, that made me sort of suddenly like question mark where this particular thread is going to go next is I, this was the first time where I really felt like I am not clear whether the narrative intends us to be on Maddie's side or if Maddie is supposed to be wrong. And the fact that that wasn't clear to me made me worry that like, you know, if, if, if Maddie is still kind of remaining like a little bit our sort of like idealistic Vox Populi, you know, kind of keeping everybody on their best behavior, um, and we're meant to believe that her perspective on the world in this episode is serving that same function of like keeping everybody honest and we're supposed to side with her, then I'm really troubled by a lot of the implications of that. Um, so, so first of all, of all, I think, um, like I, I, I think that the idea that like the the heroism thing was really um, was puzzling to me, and I and I know and I know you wanted we we can talk a little bit too about like because I know you had some thoughts about like like what does Maddie know and when did she know it essentially like in terms of how the flame functions in her brain, but I think my my big kind of question mark with that was like. You know, when she, when she, when she tells Clark, you know, that implying that there's something dishonest in Clark never having framed Clark as the hero of these stories and then kind of frames it to her like, you know, like, I thought that, like, I never thought that you were a hero. You framed, you, like, you always told me that all these other people were the heroes, but then all along you were the hero, and now you are not being heroic, and so, like, now you have let me down. Like, I think what what I what I want that to mean, like, what I'd like for this to be where the storyline is going is that, like, I'd like this to be a place where we're kind of unpacking the black and whiteness of thinking that happens when you're 12. Like I'd like this to be Maddie, the child and not like the voice of the commanders and their infinite wisdom. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to feel like this is a real thing that kids do. Um, especially when you're 12 and you like think that you fucking know anything. Like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes kids are not like, sometimes kids are not super compassionate, especially towards adults, you know? And, and the idea that like, your parents are human beings who have an interior life that is separate from you where the things that they do and and believe and think don't necessarily belong to you and that when a parent or adult withholds information from a child and then the child is like, well, you didn't tell me that, that's bad. It's like sometimes the answer is, you are not developmentally capable of processing all of the intricacies of this thing that happened, you know, which is why like the way we teach history to children starts off very basic and then it gets more complicated, like as their brains develop, you know? So I think that this idea that Maddie has, that the world has people who are inherently heroes 
And she keeps meeting them and being disappointed. And then, and then here, how this is all kind of culminates in this idea that like now Clark is her new disappointing hero, I think is, I think part of the reason I found that really like really harsh and upsetting is because like I think Clark is a heroic person, but Clark also knows more than anybody else does, certainly more than Maddie does, that nothing that she's ever done has been in a vacuum. Like everything that she's done that is heroic, that Maddie would perceive to be heroic, it is always a team effort. There is always a Bellamy or a Raven or an Abby or a Monty or a Jasper or an Octavia or a Lincoln or Alexa or a Roan or a somebody or eight people or a whole team of people or all of the delinquents or whatever doing things together. And that like one of the things that has, you know, that has kept her who she is has been this whole network of other people who are always willing to sort of step in and help when she needs help. Um, so like, it feels to me like a disservice to Clark to present it as though she would ever see herself in that kind of a light. And I think that it, it works and I'm willing to totally buy it if how this continues to unfold in the next couple episodes is about Maddie realizing that nothing is that simple. But I think what, but what made me feel kind of like, you know, shaky about that is having that kind of juxtaposed with, you know, like she's very, like Maddie is very judgmental towards Abby in this episode, because like, again, Maddie is 12 and not developmentally able to comprehend like the complexities of addiction. So like, that's fair. If we're like, if, Again, if Maddie's not the point of view, like if she's not the narrative kind of point of view in this, um, but also that she's still, after everything, after having heard the same things that Clark heard, Maddie came away with it with this very strange parallel of Octavia in the bunker being similar to Clark at Mount Weather, instead of the yeah. much more natural comparison of Dante at Mount Weather, that's yeah. the that's the parallel to me. Like that's the if you're gonna make a Mount Weather comparison, Octavia is the Dante Wallace, and and nothing about it feels comparable to the choice that that Clark made in the same way. So so that so again. No. Again, if this is about Maddie being wrong, like Maddie is being a child who has a child's perspective where, you know, she's built these people up in her mind as these mythic, you know, like fairy tale characters. And then consecutively, every single one of them finally kind of culminating in Clark come crashing down off their pedestals. That's something that I think is really interesting to me in terms of it being kind of like, a coming of age story about the world being a much more complicated place than we believe it is as children. But, and this transitions into what I, what I'm sure you want to talk about. That doesn't make sense if she's also now possessed of the wisdom of all the commanders and thus 
is no longer thinking like a child. And so Except, where those lines are- the fucking commanders are all also 12-year-old girls. So if she has like right. 30, 13-year-olds in her head right. screaming yeah. at her, then it would make perfect sense that it's she like, would be like 12-year-old logic on right. steroids. Like Becca in a class like of eighth graders. In her head. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's like Becca, like one adult and then like 8 billion preteens just being like, no, your mom's being bad. <laughs> right, right. It's like, yeah, well, yeah, well, like, that's like the implication that we get from Titus is that the commanders die really young. So it's like, are Becca and Lexa yeah. the only adults in there? We don't know. <laughs> like, that, like, is Lexa an adult? Like, she was like, she, they told us she was 12 and she got the flame and she hadn't, like, she was like, maybe 18. Maybe 18. Like, she was still a teenager. Like, yeah. no one, no one other, has, has there ever been a commander other than Becca who was actually an adult? Because otherwise it is literally just a bunch of teenagers. <laughs> And Titus, like, Titus is, like, maybe, like, what, 50? And he's and he'd served, like, several commanders. Like, he'd served, like, a bunch yeah, of them. exactly. So they seem to, exactly. like, turn, and- job turnover is high. <laughs> Very, well, not to mention, like, if there's 30 plus, if there has been 30 plus commanders in whatever, in, in at the beginning of the show, what had been 97 years, then right. none of them, like, the average time that you survive when you're a commander is under three years, which, right, like, you right. know, makes, makes Clark's terror of being a commander much higher. But then also, like, when you think about, like, all of the Novitiate, all the, um, the Nightbloods that, like, they had in, um, for the, uh, in season three, they were all, like, preteens. You know, they're, like, 10, right. 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, maybe. So, like... Well, and Lexa was 12 when she was ascended. So Lexa was commander for at least six or eight years. So, like, so that... But that even knocks down the average. Like, that right, makes everyone exactly. else's average so, like, lower might, if she's an outlier. Yeah. So everyone else yeah. won a conclave when they were 12, and they reigned for, like, 18 months before they, like, yeah. died horribly. So surprisingly. Because they're fucking 12-year-olds. <laughs> right. So, okay. So, like, cards on the table. My problems with the flame and with the commander as mythology and as story are many. So the first thing that bugged me about this scene is when Maddie says to Clark, you know, I, uh, she bore it so they don't have to just like you at Mount Weather. So, like, my problems with that are myriad. One of them is, like you said... As in an analogy, it makes no sense. Like, as soon as I heard that, I was like, wait, what? Like, what Octavia did in the bunker is nothing like what Clark did at Mount Weather. Like, I think Dante would be the comparison, or maybe Kane would be the Clark in that situation. Like, he did something that he felt terrible about and that he felt like was wrong because it was the only way to stop this horrific violence happening to people that he cared about. Like, maybe. But, like, Octavia and Clark, like, there's this that's not a logical comparison. So like number one, like I don't think that 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 was just sort of like what what the hell are you talking about? Number two, I was like, how the hell does Maddie know that story or know that line? Because none of the commanders were there for that. Like Lexa wasn't there. Like Lexa had already abandoned. Like the reason Clark did that at Mount Weather is because Lexa abandoned her. So Lexa wasn't there. Um, the sort of I bear it so they don't have to line. That's something that Dante said to Clark and Clark said to Bellamy. And then in season four, Clark says it again, but she never says it to Lexa. This is not like a thing that like any of the commanders would have any way of knowing. So I was trying to figure out how that worked. And so I like I put up a tweet that was basically like, hey, can somebody like remind me, was there a time when Clark said this to Lexa? Because I genuinely don't remember. And Basically, no. And, like, a couple people pointed out to me, well, the flame was also in Clark's head. So so maybe, like, Maddie's hearing it 
like Mabity knows because she also has Clark's memories in there. And I'm like, okay, that's probably it. But there are two problems with that. Number one, how the fuck are we supposed to know that? All we've ever been told is the commanders are in there, their commanders are in there, the commanders are in there. We know that when she goes to sleep, she sometimes, if you're a commander, you sometimes dream other commanders' memories. And sometimes if you're asleep or you're meditating, you either like dream memories or like they can talk to you in some way. But we don't know what they say. We don't know who they are. We don't know what they know. We don't know does, does, if you have the flame in your head, do you know everything that they know? Do you know only things that they choose to tell you to know? Is there like a rhyme or a reason to it? Can you decide? Yes, I want to hear you right now. No, I don't. Do they like, can you like go to any particular commander and be like, I want all your memories, right? Like, like we don't have any fucking idea what kind of information is available there or how it gets there. Number three, if in fact the reason that she knows that story is because there's a commander Clark inside of the flame, then that introduces this whole bizarre new thing where we have two separate versions of Clark. There's the, there's the copy of Clark that like the, the flame saved after 316. And then there's real Clark who has continued to live and have experiences. So is Maddie talking simultaneously to two different versions of Clark? Cause that's a whole like, bag of worms that I feel like if that's what's happening, we should maybe explore that. And like, and if it is, if it is from Clark that Maddie is receiving this version of the story that she then throws in Clark's face, using it against Clark, that I also don't understand because like if, if that memory right? came from Clark, then she would also have Clark's context, which is that it was a thing that was done right. together, that it was a thing that was like that, that, Maddie would know, like if Maddie was seeing things through Clark's perspective, she'd understand Clark's she would perspective. Understand Clark's perspective. She would like, like she when she had the dream with of um, Becca dying, she was like she was she was experiencing it. She was feeling what Becca was feeling. So if if that's how it works, right? If she's feeling she what Clark is feeling, then she wouldn't be like, "What the fuck, Clark? I don't understand why you did this or why you never told me." Because she would know why Clark never told her. Because right. she would also experience the guilt and the feeling of sort of like horror. So like her anger and her accusation. So then there's this like, this is where the kind of like personality problem comes in with the flame. Because it's like, okay, like you said, if Maddie is still Maddie and she's a 12 year old, then I can see her sort of having that reaction. But is Maddie still Maddie? Like if, if she's melded with the flame, if like all the commanders are now a part of her then she isn't Maddie anymore. She isn't a 12-year-old or she's 30 12-year-olds on a USB port, which is like a whole other thing. But, you know, she isn't Maddie anymore. So then why would she have this really emotional 12-year-old reaction? But if she is a 12-year-old, like... Right. It just, it doesn't... Like, I need... I need at least five minutes of exposition dump on how the fuck this thing works. What it can do, what it can't do... The way that it, like, are you still the same person when you have it in you that you were before? Or are you now, like, a hive mind plus you? Like, I, I, I like, I cannot go another step further with this, this MacGuffin without some rules to understand how it goes. And the rules can be whatever they want them to be. But, like, I need some guidelines to understand how this thing works and what the hell the implications are of it. Here's something else that I was just thinking about. As I was falling asleep last night, um, after, cause we texted about this a little bit last night too. Like I, um, so, so in, in trying to sort of parse, like, you know, my, my feelings of like, are we, you know, are we hearing a 12 year old who has the perspective of a child on the world and, and the arc of the story is going to be about her 
you know, maybe through a combination of commander wisdom and real life experience, realizing that that perspective was naive? Or is this some kind of, or is the narrative telling us when Maddie says these things, she is speaking correctly? I think I think the narrative is on Maddie's side. I think Maddie. I think I mean, that's, that's what that's what I bugged me. That's what like uh, because <laughs> because Maddie is still on Octavia's side. Like Maddie heard that story and took away from it and a reinforcement that was like that that like Octavia is still heroic. And I was sitting there thinking like if Maddie is if Maddie forgives Octavia but not Abby after having heard that story and like teams up with Octavia but still thinks like. You know, like Maddie, like, when, like she, Abby and Clark are like if she, yeah, if she's like yeah, Team Octavia and is mad at Clark because and mad Clark at Clark tell her yeah the story about Mount Weather from I'm her just like, side. I don't like, what the fuck. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's where I'm really stuck. Is I is I feel like up and like up until this episode, I even like even with the like when you know when Maddie first gets the flame in her head and she's going all you know like nut bar. Um, I felt. <laughs> You know, I felt like, okay, so, so the pieces of, of, you know, like the pieces of Maddie that we've seen be textually different because of the flame are, you know, like we, we see that she got the Becca flashback. We hear her say like, you know, like the commanders choose the things that they force you to see and it's shitty, but you have to feel it because that's like, that's part of like how it, it works, I guess. And then later we see her just kind of casually like, knife a guy and then be like rattling off battle plans so like that's clearly a commanderified version of maddie because maddie the like no don't shoot an innocent person versus maddie the like you know cutting a guy's throat because the bullet will be too loud it's like okay so these are moments where i feel it feels clear to me that we're seeing oh she's already changing you know like she yeah, is yeah, she's changing yeah. into a new version of herself that is shaped by you know having all these commanders like voices in her head and there's still moments where she's maddie but there's moments where it's like oh okay so like like you know lexa or somebody else is like in the driver's seat right now okay i get it that's why you're just like oh i'm gonna just like casually slice this guy's throat because that's the like tactical you know military leader thing to do here where i felt frustrated was that I was no longer I felt like those lines were no longer clear you know and I and I think that the you know the old Maddie the like moral black and whiteness of Maddie where there's good guys and bad guys um I get I think I feel like I get it in terms of her resistance to helping McCreary like I I get why Maddie would be like these are bad people, you know, like there are good guys and there are bad guys. This is a bad guy, you know, like we've been up against these people before. They're bad. Don't help them. Um, and so, so that I get, that doesn't necessarily mean that I think that Maddie is right, but I think that's, that feels like that's coming from Maddie. But I feel like the place where I'm just so stuck is that like, it feels, it also feels in alignment with the old Maddie, the actual child Maddie, that like, that she can't let go of this Octavia hero worship. And it allows her to frame Octavia somehow still as a good guy after having heard that whole story, because she's still sort of caught up in this whole like Octavia 
myth, you know. Um, but but I feel like it's like in in past episodes where we've seen Maddie totally under Octavia's spell and Clark be like, ah, uh, fuck no. It's been more clear from the narrative perspective that we, like Clark, are right to be worried that Maddie is too naive there. You know, like when she agrees to be Octavia's second and Clark is like, holy fuck, holy fuck, holy fuck, and running down in slow motion to stop it. Like, we're with Clark. We're on Clark's, the narrative is on Clark's side. Like, this is a bad idea. This is dangerous. Octavia is up to something. Maddie is not safe. Like, run, kid, run. Like, you're, you're, myth of this person is not the actual woman that you're talking to you know like and clark tells her like she's changed this is not octavia like this is another crazy scary person so like so all that was consistent up to a point and then here you know now we have clark and maddie now have the same information that you know that abby has that we the audience have about what happened down there and like you know like not to say that it's not you know right to have compassion for how shitty it was to be Octavia, but it felt like Maddie doesn't ascribe any agency or choice to Octavia in like choosing to do like in having created the dark thing that one crew became Maddie kind of frames it as like, well, but that like, like, well, but she sacrificed herself. She like nobly put herself, you know, like she like, yeah. She bore this suffering so they didn't have to. But it, but the thing is, the thing that Maddie's not getting is like, the reason that's false is because everybody else bore it more than she did. Everybody yeah, had to eat seriously. people. Everybody had to fight for their lives. Everybody became these dark, twisted, violent versions of themselves. Like those words don't apply there because like, like, yes, Octavia came out of it. You know, like Octavia and Abby came out of that bunker. Like, like more fucked up than anybody else, you know, on, on really deep levels because they made a choice to save their people that had a huge emotional cost to them. And that's super real. Like there's like, like they're not like, there are no black and white villains in this story. Like I, so I get wanting to be like, like let's take a second and like, think about how shitty it was to be Octavia. Like that's real. But also like, the idea that that bearing pain to keep your people from bearing pain, you know, like the suffering to keep the people who you're supposed to protect from suffering, like that is a, you know, that's a constant kind of refrain of like, that's the thing that good leaders do. And that's like, to me, it feels like that's so starkly the opposite of what happened in in one crew where what happened was Octavia subjected everybody else to something that was more costly to them in terms of the cost on their soul and their lives than in many ways that it was for her. So again, like if this is coming from somebody who's 12 and is naive and idolizes Octavia and is supposed to be wrong, then I totally get it and it completely tracks. If it's coming from a commander saying this is what leadership looks like, then I don't understand what I was supposed to take away from Blood Rain's story. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And and the comparison to, to Mount Weather is like even more confounding because like what Clark did, like, 
they got to the point where they had to irradiate Mount Weather because if they didn't, literally every single person on, you know, every single Sky Crew person, every single person they love would die, right? Or like everybody in there would die. And not only that, but then Mount Weather would continue, like the people inside of it would use their bone marrow to go out of the mountain and then kill even more people, you know? So it was like, either we stop this here and save the people we love, or we don't, everyone we love dies. And also like, they'll go out and start like conquering the grounders. You know what I mean? They'll start like crushing them because that's what they're going to do, you know? And so it's like, so, and, and that was something like Clark and Bellamy did that together and Monty, like to a lesser extent, but Clark and Bellamy did that together. That was their choice alone. Um, you know, and, and it had huge repercussions, obviously on both of them and then also on other people and on the relationships like Jasper, but like, I just feel like that's categorically different. Like you have, they have an enemy, they they have an enemy and they wipe out that enemy in this really sort of like kind of fucked up way in order to save the lives of their people and to prevent further bloodshed and war. That's categorically different from the leader of a people murdering her own people in order to force them to do something that they don't want to do um, because the long-term repercussions of it might lead to more death. Like, like there's kind of some overlap, but like the fact that Octavia is shooting her own people to coerce, like, like she's shooting people in order to force people like to coerce people to do something they don't want to do. And that's not like that is, that's what's happening in, the bunker. That's not what happened at Mount Weather. Like the like ba- what the thing that they're bearing is not in any way comparable. So <laughs> there, like, there's a situational so like, parallel, so if, but it if, isn't if, between those two people. Exactly. So like, so if if we're that's supposed to be accurate, if like we're supposed to be like, yeah, oh my god, like those things are just like each other, then I'm like, I really don't get what you were thought you were doing in that bunker because like that's not what I got out of that story at all (laughs) yeah Um, yeah. let alone and it's also like maybe it might be more analogous if they had opened the bunker like if if that octavia and the flashbacks were still blood rain and now but like it's certainly not applicable to the octavia who burned that hydro farm you know what i mean like yeah like there's no comparison and so if that's supposed to be an accurate comparison then i'm just like i don't know what the hell you're even talking about and then like this sort of ambiguity about I think the ambiguity about is this 12-year-old Maddie talking or is this Commander Wisdom talking or is it some kind of weird in between, like, that compounds the issue of, like, what am I supposed to be understanding about this conflict and what's happening and what it means? But it also is, like, like that gets to the heart of why I get so frustrated with this, like, the Flame and Commander stuff as a narrative, as, like, a piece of the story because, like... Because again, because like we're left in the situation where we're just constantly being like, wait, what? Um, oh, hang on. Hey, okay. Who, who, who is saying that? Like, how, who am I? What is it? Is that supposed to be wise? Is that supposed to be a 12 year old? Is it something in between? How does she know that? How is this happening? Like, like all of that ambiguity about like, where did this come from? And what's the significance? And like, what is it supposed to mean? Just takes the whole story and turns into this big like mush. And, and like, it's just incredibly frustrating, you know, like things that have been 
crystal clear all season just got completely thrown into the air as soon as that flame went into Maddie's head. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I think that the like the place where I wish that we had a lot more information about like you know the the specifics of like like okay so like our only picture of what of what it feels like to be a person who has a flame in their head like from their perspective comes from like the season 3 finale with the Ali Becca Clark stuff which we know is an outlier because of the alley factor of it so right, like she's in the city of light she's not right. actually in whatever the flame place is right she's like the city of light and they're merging together yeah so. so like becca's there and she has some kind of like access to becca and to what are clearly like becca's memories but yeah but she's but but like the double chipping of it means like like that's a that is an outlier and should not be counted. Like that is like a representative right. so example. There's ambiguity of, there in terms of like we don't know how much of that is actually is alley versus flame. What normally goes on, yeah. yeah. Like so, yeah. so it's impossible to know from our perspective, from the audience's perspective, if that is in any way a kind of like a representation of how the flame normally works, or which parts of it are flame and which parts of it are chip. Right. So like so part of what so one of the questions that that I have. On the heels of um, Maddie having had the Becca flashback, um, and and one piece where I where I feel like like this is this is the argument where I feel like I don't understand how it can be possible for everyone to like um, like to like have everybody's memories as though those things happened to you. The the place where I get tripped up on that is like. You know, so, so like every past commander then would have, you know, like the same set of memories plus one, you know, like, um, so, so, you know, Maddie has everybody's memories, including Lexa's. Lexa had everybody's memories, you know, from before, et cetera. So that means everybody presumably had, had the memories of entire lifetime of Becca. Like everybody would have had every single. Yeah. Like, like Becca's entire consciousness would have been fused with Lex's entire consciousness. So then, right. why are they all still scared of technology? Like, why is Lexa and right? every commander previous <laughs> to her perpetuating a society where they're like, where they, where, where technology is a thing that you fear? If, like, especially like now that we know, like, if how their society evolved was Cadigan, Killing Becca, you know, destroying her as as a witch, you know, like she's trying to she's trying to save everyone with, with technology, and he just he essentially like destroys her technology with superstition, basically, like he discredits it and then he kills her, the whole witch burning thing, so that he can like perpetuate a society which he is at the top. So then my question is like, you know, so so then like is he the second person who takes the flame? I don't know, but it's at a certain point. You know, even if he is the second commander or if he handpicks the second commander, at a certain point, somebody is going to have a flame put in their heads. They're going to see what Maddie saw and be like, hey, the reason that we're all nightbloods is because of science and like science is good. And the idea that science is bad and destructive came from a man that was trying to, like, impose his own agenda and sort of artificially create this society. So, like, 
we don't have to be that way. You yeah. know, like in Titus, Titus unless, is like, unless, unless they don't have access to all memories, they only have access right. to certain memories. But we right. don't know that because but they we don't never know that. fucking explain any of this. You could have whatever you, it can work whatever way you want exactly. it to work. Like yeah. you can have whatever rules for this you want. Just tell me what they fucking are. <laughs> well, um, and like this is where, so like I, like, like the, you know, the work that we had to kind of do like on our own to make it make sense. It's like, I like I could buy it. Like if, you know, if every generation, like, there's like the flame keepers, right? And they have like, like even with the flame keepers, I feel like there's a gap between the implication that Titus actually knows a lot about technology, like about Becca, about, you know, these things. And, and he's controlling information being given to the populace, which which makes sense. Like, like if, if every commander knows all of this stuff and the flamekeeper structure exists to kind of keep it from disseminating, like I, we've never been told that I'd buy that, but that also feels weird. Like I, Gaia doesn't feel like that. Like Gaia feels uh-huh. like a person who genuinely believes that like, the the cultural mysticism, the spirit of the commanders, the wisdom of the commanders is is a real supernatural force. Like maybe it exists in this piece of technology, but it it feels spiritual to her in a way where like, you know, Titus being willing to handle a gun, even though it's like verboten in his society to touch them, means that like Titus exists in a sort of a gray area where there's like there's rules for everybody else that don't apply to him specifically because he has a different layer of knowledge, uh, you know, which would make sense because he's probably in his 50s. And so like he's old enough that he could have like learned about Becca from his parents. Like it's only been 97 years, you right, know. Right, um, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So like, so, so I think part of it is, <laughs> part of it is to me is just like, some of this feels like a factor of the fact that 97 years doesn't feel like enough time for everyone who's ever had that flame put into their heads to see until Maddie to see what Maddie saw and felt of what happened to Becca and and come away with it still being like you know like technology is bad and I don't need to interrogate that belief at all. <laughs> you know, right, so yeah, yeah. So yeah. like so like Lexa and 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 you know, and this is why I'm kind of like, you know, how how much of any of this is like, you know, uh like a retcon versus anything that they kind of had planned, because it's like like for Lexa, once she like met Sky Crew, she had this relationship with Clark, she was, like, getting to know them, she was realizing, like, oh, the world is more complicated than I thought, you know, including, like, technology is not necessarily always bad and evil because here's these people who came from this world of technology and they're not all bad and evil, so, like, we're expanding our universe, you know. Like, why was that never connected to, oh, this reminds me of, like, things that I've seen in visions from Becca Promheta, the first commander, you know, like, like, I think, I think introducing Becca um, as a person and, you know, and her role in this only like during and then after Lex's death, meaning we never really got any way to sort of suss out like what of Becca's world of technology did Lexa ever know about? And Lex is the only commander with whom we've ever spent any kind of time. So like Lex is kind of our only barometer for what any of them know. 
Yeah, exactly. What any of them know or what they think or, like, also, I mean, all this stuff with, like, Maddie changing and the flame going in and, and like, it changes sort of, like, was, like, I mean, this is hilarious because, like, Bob Morley actually brought this up at SDCC at at San Diego Comic-Con in an interview where he was, like, he he asked Eliza and she kind of looked like, don't ask me this, but he was, like, so, like, okay, so, like, there's a whole bunch of commanders on that chip, right? So he's, like, so, so, like... Is Maddie still Maddie or is she, is she like, is there just like a bunch of people in her head all the time? Like, is that how Lexa was too? Is that, so like there's this weird sort of thing where it's like, was Lexa ever really Lexa or was she just like a collective, you know? And like, and now Maddie is also the collective, you know? So how much of what Lexa was like is because she was Lexa and how much of it was because she's a commander? Like, we don't know that. And like the other, the other little thing about, <laughs> while we're picking nits about this um the other sort of like big question mark that i've always had about commanders that i was i was completely prepared to let go and just be like well whatever it's fine like whatever it'll never we'll never go back to it so it doesn't matter if it's ever explained but we are kind of going back to it is the issue of so like the idea the the sort of point of putting the flame in maddie the idea is if we have a true commander, everyone will just automatically follow the true commander because it's a commander, right? Like there's a sort of like problem solved. You're doing an end run around this whole, you know, like leadership thing because like flame equals commander equals automatic absolute authority, right? Except that when we were introduced to Lexa, we were told she was the first commander to unite the 12 clans. Like, the thing that originally made Lexa special is that you used to have all these warring faction clans, and Lex is the one who managed to get them to, like, get together and unify and cooperate. And then season three, even some of the plot was sort of built around, like, her struggles to keep that together. So right. I'm like, so either it's true that, like, the true commander is what the grounders follow since time immemorial automatically... Or it's true that they were warring factions until this most amazing commander of all, Alexa, came along and she united them. Right. But both of those things can't be true at the same time. Right. And if Lexa did just, like, unite them fairly recently, like, within a year or two of when the show began, then, like, why would everybody sort of revert to, oh, true commander will follow them instead of reverting to just, like, we are all sort of fractured clans you know what i mean like so i'm just sort of like it doesn't it doesn't add up and again i if that if if the time of the commanders were over and we were leaving this behind i am perfectly happy to just chalk it up to well you know like sometimes you change whatever something like things don't always work out exactly or they aren't always like perfectly like put together and like you just gotta let it go i'd be happy to let it go but since we're still relying on this shit i'm like okay (laughs) so if we're still doing this i'm gonna need you to explain some of this stuff in order for me to buy it right because i have questions that remain relevant (laughs) to what you're asking me to believe (laughs) yeah and i i guess i think i think part of what i part of what i sort of and I'm struggling with just in terms of, of, you know, of how, how are we going to sort of experience this playing into like the sort of the macro plot, the like moving the chess pieces yeah. around the table plot. Yeah. I think so my, 
so I, I, something that I like, I, I think there's actually something really interesting in, in the notion of Maddie as a leader of the idea that, yeah. um, that Maddie on, like the Maddie that we first met, the Maddie who believes in giving people chances, who has the kind of the most idealized vision of who all these people are that has this sort of idealized vision of like what the world could be, um, how hopeful she is, um, how big her heart is. Like I, I think that you could argue that like, even though she is a child, um, there is a lot in, you know, in her, in her heart that makes her excellent, leader potential you know knowing that she will like need some support from grown-ups because she is 12 <laughs> but like but the idea of right, maddie no, but, i mean we've talked about this before like the idea of she she is like there's there's a lot about maddie that could make her like the the sort of new start way to you know kind of transcend old problems yeah be really beautiful yeah and and that in ground of society becoming that person around the age of 12 being kind of an accepted cultural practice, I'm sort of like, oh, okay, so like the, you know, like the the flame as a way of conveying that, um, like, you know, like I know she looks like a kid, but she's still in charge, essentially. Like that I don't mind so much. Um, but I also do feel like um I I think just like on a macro level where I'm where I'm frustrated and this is something where um, I, I'm going to be really interested just to sort of see kind of politically, you know, how everything shakes out by the end of the season and how sort of positions it's going into season six, if I feel differently about it. But like, I felt like the end of season four with like, you know, Octavia wins a conclave she takes one group of people from each clan, creates a new group that is not based in clans, that is, that is its own new thing, and then spends all of season five doing increasingly desperate things to hold that new society together. Um, to, while the other characters that we see, you know, Clark and Maddie on one side and then Space Crew on the other exist entirely apart from that society. Like, to me, it feels like, like season five, starting where season four ended, um, and then, you know, bringing in kind of like a new outside enemy has been really about like, um, the old ways of doing things have been replaced by new things. And in the case of one crew, it, it isn't necessarily that it's been replaced by something that's better. Like, it's not like Blood right, Reina right. is superior. It's just that, like, we dismantled that thing and we built a new thing. And so if the new thing is bad, if the new thing doesn't work, we're going to build our new, new thing on the foundation of this. And and so so as soon as the flame comes back and we're back to conclaves and nightblood ascensions and flames and flame keepers and we're putting the flame in somebody like Maddie who has the potential to actually be a really great leader part of what makes me wonder is like so so like 
what was the role of dismantling that entire social structure to build a new one and then loop back to it unless we're going to be interrogating, unless we're interrogating both what was wrong with the old system and what was wrong with the new system. In which case, I like the idea of like, if Maddie's going to be a leader, that she's a commander in a different way. Like, is she a commander without a flame? Is she a commander who abolishes conclaves? Is she like, like, what is, and maybe we'll see that. Like, maybe if she remains in leadership, we'll see, you know, will she like take the flame out and like lead on her own, you know, like without necessarily. Will she transform, you know, and sort of be like, try to make a more democratic sort of society rather than the sort of autocratic power exactly of the, yeah the commanders and Bladrena. i mean like if there's some kind of transformation or change that you know in the last couple episodes then then i'm then i'm on board with that it's just like right now it just feels like we went on this giant journey to wind up back where we started right that's what i feel like that's what what feels weird to me is like this this feels like with the minus the clan division part of it, like minus the fact that, like, you know, like, okay, like, yes, there is no, like, Sengeta crew, Asgata, whatever, you know. But other than that, you know, the, the kind of hierarchical social structure and everything else seems to kind of be like functioning very much the same. And, you know, and I think, and the reason I find it a little worrisome is like, that it, that it is addressed textually, you know, like, like Octavia says to Indra, like, well, I thought you've been saying like the time of the commanders is over, the time of the commanders is over. And Indra was like, well, it was now it's not, you know? Yeah. And if like, that's the actual answer, if it's just sort of like, psych back to commander time, I'm like, right. That's what I'm worried I, about is like, again, like, I is that, that. <laughs> right. I think, I think that's where, I think for me, a lot of where I'm getting tripped up in, in, you know, how, how the, how we're laying the groundwork for what society is going to look like now. I think part of, part of where I, where I get sometimes a little bit stuck is trying to figure out sometimes it is not clear. Like, is that a character saying that in which case is coming from that character's perspective and they could very well be wrong or their view is limited or is that the narrative using that character to tell us that? And I, and sometimes it has been easier, you know, like, like the shift from blood must have blood to blood must not have blood. You know, that felt very clear. It was sort of like, okay, this is, this is a mindset that both, you know, Sky Crew with their Exodus charter and the grounders with their whole belief system have, have held on to this very black and white, very violent, you know, every crime is a capital crime, us versus them mentality. The leader characters that we gravitate towards are the ones who are working to undo that. And then it's given a name and it's like codified into words. And now we say blood must not have blood. Like now we don't want to be those people, you know? So that was something where it was like, it's clear that what the narrative wants us to believe makes a good leader. Like it's clear which side we're supposed to be rooting for and where the point of view of the story in terms of like the kind of world that we want to build, which direction it's headed. And I think that here where it's fuzzy is, you know, is just the idea that that a 12-year-old who in grounder society is like fully capable of ruling the entire society, you know, like 12 is a standard age for commander ascension. So, okay, so so you can be a 12-year-old with the full wisdom 
of the commanders in your head and you can hear the story of what happened in one crew, like in the bunker and still come away with that thinking that Octavia is a heroic and admirable leader. That's where I'm confused because I'm like, am I supposed to think that Am I supposed to think that that is true? Or am I supposed to think that the 12-year-old starstruck Maddie thinks that's true? And that Clark saying, no, she took away their choice. Like, she did not let them, you know, participate in their own society fully. That's wrong and bad. Like, whose side am I supposed to be on, you know? Yeah. I mean, my hunch, I think it's sort of weird because I I feel like my sort of gut feeling is that I'm not sure that, like, either Maddie or Clark is supposed to be right about that, per se, but I definitely think that Maddie is supposed to be, like, Maddie is right to be telling Clark we're on the wrong side of the war. We shouldn't be sitting on the sidelines. We should be going, you know, we shouldn't be, like, helping McCreary. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, like, for me, I think it's, like, a little bit, it's it's kind of like a... a like, the real issue is that, frankly, like, if the end of the story is that, hey, it's the time of the commanders again, and we're going whole hog on this thing where, like, Maddie's a commander, and it's a story about, like, commanders in flames, and it's, we're going to rebuild this commander-based society, and blah, 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 like, I am not sold on that story. I'm not yeah. sold on the flame. You know, like I'm not I'm not sold on the commanders. The way that 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 world building has happened on screen is not sufficient for me to either understand it or particularly enjoy it. The commander as a character, I'm not interested in. I'm interested in Maddie as a 12-year-old girl, but like Maddie the commander, like Maddie the commander feels a lot less interesting and more distant and more confusing to me than Maddie the person ever did. And and the idea of a a social structure led by a commander is something that I feel like I don't want. I don't want it. And like, so, you know, so like, if that's where they're headed, then that's the, it's their show. It's their prerogative. That's, you know, like knock yourself out. But I'm not, I am not, I'm not on that ride. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> so, same so here. Like, a lot depends for me on what happens in the last couple episodes and how things shake out. And if it turns yeah. out that like, if it does turn out that, that you know, Maddie, that we're headed towards something where Maddie is transforming this whole thing, you know, where, like, where the flame becomes something else, you know, it's important for some other reason, or where she sort of transforms what it means to be a commander, or in some other way the commander and the flame winds up being, like, subsumed or transformed or sort of written off, then, like, fine, that's cool, I'm, I'll be very, very happy. Yeah. Um, but... <laughs> But if it doesn't, like, I'm I'm just, like, I'm not on board for just a straight, you know, like, woo, Commander Story. Like, I'm just, I'm... Yeah, like, like circling back not to... Not a part of the show. Yeah, it's not yeah. part of the show I'm interested in. Yeah, I know, I, I agree. I think that there's a lot, like, at at this point, like, what I, what I want from all of these characters, and particularly from whatever characters end up, in positions of leadership is for them all to be able to kind of look back and see that the kind of totalitarian social structures that all of them came from 
are not the way to build a society. And that goes for everyone. Like that, that's, you know, and we, and we've, we've watched some of them make that transition. You know, like we watched Dioza make that transition. Like we, we saw what it did to Dioza to be called a dictator when she was acting like a dictator, you know, and, um, and we've seen her come around to the idea of, you know, of what a, a peaceful democratic society of the kind that Kane is invested in building, like to see what it would look like to realize that she wants that, you know, to, to tap into the part of her that like spent so long fighting dictators that she couldn't recognize that she had become one herself, you know? So like, it's like, I think with Dioza, that's an arc that's been like handled really deftly and, and that we kind of leave in a place where whatever the new world order looks like, Dioza's not going to be ruling through fear and manipulation anymore. Like that's a definitive change. Like she's, she's reached that point, but I think Kane has also reached, you know? Um, we have people like Octavia and McCreary who are very invested in like violence and fear as the way that they hold on to power that were largely being, you know, like framed as like, you know, those people are like wrong and bad and you don't want them in charge. But I think in terms of like, you know, like however it all shakes out, whoever ends up in charge, like whether it's Octavia, whether it's Maddie, whether it's somebody else, you know, whether it's Dioza, kind of whatever happens to me, you know, and this is where I was sort of, I was, you know, I was tweeting a little bit last night about like, I, you know, I think one of the things that, that contributed to me feeling like I kind of just like hit a little bit of a wall this week, you know, in terms of, of enthusiasm for the rest of the season, which I'm hoping will come back. But, but part of why I was kind of like feeling a little fatigued about it is what I, what I want to believe that this show is going to deliver, you know, kind of inching closer towards it season by season is moving towards a better world. And I know that like however many seasons this show stretches out, like it's not on its last legs yet. So like whatever the end game is could still be many seasons away. And that's fair. You know, like that's like, I just want to feel like we're moving forward towards something and we're putting the past behind us, even if it's little bit by little bit, and that these characters are are learning permanent lessons about what they don't want to replicate in the society that they're going to build next. And I think a handful of them are there. You know, I think Kane is there. I think Dioza is there. I think Bellamy is there. I think that there are people who who have sort of been permanently transformed and have a picture of like, this is the world that I want now. This is the person that I want to be in that world. Um, I don't want us to be kind of going back and making those same mistakes. And um, and I feel like if if this season and you know, and and the next season and the next season, if we keep ending up in this kind of cyclical pattern where like the moral of the story, and this is realistic, I guess, you know, is that humans are so kind of inherently fucked up and violent and power hungry and, and ruthless about resources that always and forever, whenever there is a thing, people are going to fight to the death over who gets that thing. And the moral of the story is that humans don't learn. Then I just feel really like 
depleted as a person by that <laughs> message, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, and so that's part of where I'm kind of like, okay, like, and, and again, like, I'm totally willing to be brought around, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm totally willing for this season to end in a place where I feel like, okay, that's been flipped. Like it's moving forward. I feel better. But like, yeah, I think part of why this cyclical stuff is exhausting is because like, the, you know, the social structure of commanders, of everything that being commanders means, felt like something where taking the good parts of that and moving forward into a new society, you know, like, like that was kind of what Octavia did, you know, like she took like, she, she preserved a little piece of each clan's culture by saving a hundred of them and then created a new thing in which, like, that old way now no longer existed. So moving from commander, clan, you know, kind of culture into one crew. Now, what I'd like to see happen is that idea, the good part of one crew, which is that who you are and who makes, like, makes up, quote unquote, your people is much more diverse and less segmented than it was before where there was sky crew and then there was grounders and then amongst the grounders there were 12 clans there was ice nation they're kind of an outlier you know this idea that like everybody is the same you know like when octavia tells echo like there is no asgata there's only one crew you know like there's good and bad to that the bad of that is that like for echo like everything that she kind of knows that the world has been erased but the good of that is this idea that you can build a society where every, that's made out of everybody, you know? So I'd like to feel like that's the thing that whatever happens next that we carry forward, which would mean the next iteration of society is going to include some people from Allegis combined with space crew and grounders and one crew and sky crew and everyone all together. And we're going to keep kind of building that forward. And it's possible that that could still totally end up being true, you know? But it, it, I think, I think where I like, where I just kind of like, in in terms of how I don't know how bleak it felt that sort of hitting that moment and realizing like now we're kind of like coming back around you know full circle you know made me feel like I don't know I was I it it shifted my thinking a little bit about the fact that like I do think it's important that something that the show does is reinforce the fact that like you know, that humans have these really kind of destructive patterns that we continue to fall into. Like, that's that's super real, you know? I think what I was hopeful about in how this season was structured, when we sort of realized, like, when you realize that the war isn't necessary and only Octavia wants it, like, that sort of set us up for this kind of interrogating of, like, the concept of this war over resources. We're like, we're going to do this thing that could kill a lot of people because this one woman can't put her ego on the shelf and peaceably surrender and just carve out a space to like live with her people in like total nonviolent harmony because of the cost to her power. So like that's interesting. Like that that's a whole different thing, you know. But like now we're gearing up for this huge war that involves all these characters. They're fighting on the last survivable land on earth because the thing that they've been doing since the beginning, they're still doing, which is like, you know, this is my land. No, this is my land. No, this is my land. Okay, let's fight about it. You know, like going back to the delinquents and the grounders when the dropship first landed. So part of me just sort of feels like, 
a lot of how I feel about the season as a whole is going to depend on like, if this battle happens, how everything kind of shakes out at the end of it, what do we feel like the new society is going to look like? And if once again, it's like, here comes an enemy to take our resources, and now this slightly bigger and more unified group that also includes some allegiance people are fighting a new enemy again for a new set of resources, second verse, same as the first, then I'm kind of like, I just feel like this is a really bleak commentary on humanity. Well, and also, I mean, I just feel like it's been, I feel like part of it is just because, again, like, there's nothing inherently wrong with that story. It's just like, that's been the story every season for a really long, like, we haven't had a season that was about building anything, building either society or relationships or both, at least in season one. And part of the the issue that I have, like, part of the reason I think that, like, this episode kind of felt bleak and, like, you know, it's they're doing it on purpose, right? Like, everybody's relationships are broken. You know, like, the Blake siblings are broken. Like, Octavia reaches out and is like, this is the way it should be us fighting together. And Bellamy's like, you know, I'm not fighting for you. I'm fighting for my family. So, and 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 Clark is sort of, like, isolating herself again to the point where Maddie's saying, like, we're on the wrong side. And Clark keeps doubling down on, like, no, like, I only care about saving your life. And, and for some bizarre reason which i cannot actually wrap my head around she thinks mercury is the best way to do that like whatever we can <laughs> clark makes no sense to me anymore which is the other reason why i'm really yeah. sort of annoyed with that like what I, I don't even like the choice that isn't even logical but whatever anyway um but like so so i think the problem is that we're at a point where everything is broken you know like all these societies are broken you know like all of these relationships are broken and they've been broken for a long time like it would be one thing if clark was really isolated this season and she hadn't also been completely isolated from almost everybody that she ostensibly cares about for two seasons prior to that like it's been season three and season four and now all of season five that claire has clark has barely had a relationship with anyone like, Bellamy is the only one, and even this season, like, not barely even that. It's, like, just Maddie. You know, so it's, like, they're coasting on the sort of emotional stakes, so much of the emotional stakes of the things that they're breaking are coasting on relationships that they haven't, that have been, like, that they haven't done any work to reestablish or sort of build up in many seasons, right? So I'm just sort of, like, I feel like at this point we are overdue for a season that is about, about where, like, things get built rather than just broken. I think everything that is getting built, like the systematic destruction of everything that has been built felt like that was like, like all of season four and, and, you know, and huge chunks of season five, that feels like, like anytime there's a moment of hope or, or something positive happens or the possibility of a new future or, or a happy or a moment of human connection, then it's immediately shattered and taken away. Yeah, exactly. Which again, like you can do that, like that works for a while. But I think we've all kind of hit like, the sort of fatigue point, you know, where it's like, it's just like, after a while, it's just sort of like, you know, like, okay, like, I'm I'm willing to see out the rest of the season. But like you, I'm just sort of like, I can't take another season that's like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, this is the last time I wanted I'm I'm interested in watching this story. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, that's where I'm at, too. It's like, you know, like when, when we come back from this season three time jump and they've built 
this like home in Arcadia. Like we didn't get to see them build that, but we saw like there's a home, it exists, like they they created society, they've like brokered peace. And then, you know, and then that whole season was about, you know, m- moving towards like that becoming, you know, like fractured with like the city of light and then like those relationships being destroyed. And then season four, you know, with like the world being wiped out, you know, like like Arcadia is destroyed, Polis is destroyed, like all of these you know, all these places Literally are everything gone. Everything is destroyed. The whole world is wiped came- out. Yeah. Yeah. We. I think we all came into season five thinking, like, all right, like literal clean slate. Everything yes. destroyed. We're going to start over. Like, yes. We thought that this what are we going to build now? Building. Yeah. And, and like, and it somehow, you know, and it's and it's been about breaking everything again, including and especially the relationships that still did exist. That you know, even that had been like sort of on hold for six years. Like, rather than getting a story about how do these people who've been separated come back together and build new relationships with each other, it's really been about they come back together and everything breaks even more. You know, and so like, yeah. So again, a lot, a lot really rides for me. A lot rides on these last couple episodes and what happens and what direction they're going. And, yeah, and you know, <laughs> thing. One of the things to go back to what you're saying about how like. One sort of theme that's been happening over and over again is you get these sort of repeated, like, sort of autocratic dictatorships, totalitarian societies that get built and then kind of, like, crumble or whatever. Like, we've we had a lot of them. Like, the Ark was a kind of totalitarian society and Mount Weather and, you know, the um, the bunker and all this stuff. And, like, one issue that I have with the Flame and the Commanders that I think – I think the thing that makes me worry about it a little bit is that the flame is sort of like, it's, I'm like, I'm like, it's a kinder, gentler sort of totalitarian, like it's a kinder, gentler sort of like monarchy. Yeah. But it's still essentially like a divine right, you know, like divinely anointed dictator role like they might be a nice dictator but like still the idea is you have this chip that has this technology that makes one person superior to everyone else and therefore the kind of like chosen anointed leader that everyone follows and i'm like i have i have problems with that as a political right framework and like, and I, I'm okay with it if like, if we're presenting these sort of like dictatorships that were meant to be dismantling, but I have a real problem with that if I'm supposed to root for it. So, so this is where I'm sort of hung up on like, if, okay, if we're setting up the commander thing again, because we're going to, like you said, because we're going to like interrogate, because Maddie's going to be like, here are the things that were wrong before. And we're going to like kind of break it apart and keep the good stuff and build something new, then like, cool. But if this is kind of like reinstantiation of like, okay, but look, what we really need was like a real commander again. And now everything's going to be okay. I'm like, eh, eh. I think it's the for me what it gets to is the idea that like like old school commandering, you know, like the the thing that made you eligible to be a commander was this thing that you couldn't control. It was having night blood. And and you you win you win the job by being the most murdery. <laughs> but like the thing yeah, that makes right, you right. the thing like the sort of the first bar that you have to clear is being born with night blood. And yeah. and Maddie, like for Maddie, being born with nightblood was a source of trauma. 
You know, like yeah. for Maddie, being a Nightblood child led to this like deep fear of flame keepers as the boogeyman that comes in the night and steals children. And like this is, you yeah. know, like this is a choice that she made, you know, like under duress, like we talked about, you know, with the sort of like the coercion kind of elements of it, but a choice that she made to save Clark. And so it feels like really kind of fucked up that like after all of this, after all of that resistance, after everything that it meant to her, after only doing it to kind of like, you know, sort of under coercion and to, to you know, to sort of like for specific purposes. Now, like, the, as the flame has like hijacked her brain and she's like, oh, never mind. This is the best thing ever. I'm just like, yeah, I it, it really makes me uncomfortable. Like, I just I don't like the implications of it. Yeah, like I, I don't, I don't want, I don't want Maddie, whose whole childhood was shaped by the fear of being forced to to become this thing that she thought was so terrifying, you know, to be taken away, to be separated and isolated, you know, to have the thing that made her different, remove her from being able to be like a full participant in society you know like this idea that like you know people like titus talk about it like it's a blessing it makes you special being born with nightblood you're descended from becca from you know and for maddie it was this thing that meant that at any moment she could come and be like snatched away from her mom you know and and so i feel like if maddie's gonna be a leader which is a storyline that i'm interested in it makes me sad in this way of feeling like she's kind of already in some way like had her childhood taken away from her a little bit, you know, like having the flame put in her head. Like, and yes, she chose it, but she also kind of didn't choose it like we talked about before, you know, but like, but she did it to save Clark. And so I think if she, if she stays the commander in the like chip in the head, night blood kind of way and becomes the thing that when we first meet her, it's her, like, that's her nightmare, you know. Then it's hard to feel excited about the idea of of Maddie getting to be a leader. Whereas, like, if the chip comes out, like, if, if, the, if the difference between Maddie and the other commanders, Maddie and the other leadership structures, is that she doesn't elevate herself and separate herself by having this kind of, like, supernatural wisdom and she's kind of like i'm just like you let's do this together and builds a more egalitarian society that isn't based on like separating herself cutting herself off um being like i have night blood so i'm different and i'm not like yeah one like, of they, you there's like there's some weird sort of like eugenicsy kind of stuff yeah yeah yeah, like. yeah nightbloods are inherently better and are the leader cast you know what i mean like yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird thing where, and, and, and it has this kind of, it ha, yeah, it has this weird sort of element from like, from one side, from the kind of like grounder spirituality side, where it's like, these are like the blessed chosen ones. And then for yeah. Maddie, it's like, it's like a curse. It's like this terrible thing yeah. that like, meant she'd like grow up hiding under the floorboard so nobody would find out, you know, that she had this. That she had this thing that would single her yeah. out for this horrible life. So, so to and me, I just feel like with all that stuff, it has to be reversed, you know. And especially with like Maddie saying "I love you, Clark," versus like Octavia, we got the callback to love is weakness mm-hmm, is a mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. that that flame keepers teach earlier on. Like, so it does right. feel like I mean, you know, again, like we don't know how this ends, and it could be all this could be all heading for exactly what we were hoping for. And I exactly and I really, really hope yeah. that it does. Yeah, you know, it's just like in this. The, the I think. 
there's a bunch of sort of specific things about the way that the kind of like flame commander aspects of things with Maddie in the last couple episodes have just not been landing in ways that like make sense to me or that like with all sorts of like weird implications that I don't that I'm sort of like that make me like where I'm a little bit like, okay, I really hope that it goes the direction that we hope. Right. But I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and now the thing that I think complicates it a lot is, you know, like in having having seen from the from the finale pictures that come out that like Maddie's with Octavia now. So that's part of what makes me feel like now I'm kind of questioning like, are we meant to see that Maddie's perspective on Octavia, which is that Octavia is still a heroic leader? Like, are we are we meant to believe that that's true? In which case, it feels like kind of an uncomfortable fast forwarding through consequences for just how fucked up Octavia is right now. Which I don't think can be possibly the case because this episode also had sort of Bellamy like calling her out over and over again. Right, right. So I don't think it can be just like that we're supposed to take that and be like, wow, Octavia is like really like, I mean, I think maybe it's more of like, she's supposed to be sort of like a tragic villain, you know, rather than, but I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't know. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, but yeah. Kane and Dioza. Um, as far as space crew goes, we're sort of running out of time. I would just say that um, I hope that Monty gets to grow something other than LG2 and also uh, Echo is a badass. And also uh, I'm glad that Raven finally kissed Shaw. <laughs> And and <laughs> Murphy, that I don't actually have a lot to say. <laughs> and Murphy in the gun was like super cute. And yes, and Amore's little face lighting up at the chance to steal something <laughs> was really yes, delightful. That was also very cute. It yes. was, I felt, an uncharacteristically dumb decision for Echo to like allow Murphy to go steal things and also for her to let them just kind of saunter in without like, you know, really checking out the situation. But that's fine, whatever. Like yeah. it's, it's all it was fun. a fun little adventure squad <laughs> moment. Yeah, but I was kinda yeah, like it was. Mm. Yeah, um, and I'm happy that mu- that I'm I'm happy for the future ramifications of Murphy having McCreary's gun. Um, yes, me too. But um, but so the big part of this that I wanted to just with the last few minutes that we have um, to talk a little bit about the both the the kind of the Canaan Dioza of it all and the Dioza McCreary, you know, kind of thing. So so one thing, and I've been sitting on this because I think that the end scene, I don't think it means what everybody else thinks that it means. The Kane and Diosa thing. I have uh-huh. a theory. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so when, um, so, so what we know is that Diosa with her brilliant genius brain, which I love so much, has mapped out what she believed was like, like a bulletproof military strategy that she hashed out in every single little detail that McCreary now has so they can't use it. And so she knows where its weaknesses are, but they don't have like, an alternate plan, but she knows every single facet of that one. And so, so they're essentially like, now they're fucked because like the plan was Dioza's. So obviously it's brilliant because she's brilliant. Um, which means that like, you know, they're going to have like, she like, like Dioza having to kind of like outsmart herself <laughs> was kind of fun. Um, but so when, when Echo says, so, so there's this exchange at the end of that cave scene where Echo says, okay, so, like, what the fuck are we supposed to do? Like, how are we supposed to get in? And then she looks at Dioza, and Dioza gives her this kind of little smile, like, girl, I got a plan. And then the next time that we see Dioza, like, she and Kane 
are like being, you know, marched onto the ship. So what I, so a lot of what I saw in terms of kind of like the discourse kind of around this scene, the kind of prevailing idea of what this means seems to be that Dioza and Kane have actually turned themselves in to help McCreary defeat Dioza. Mm-hmm. That they're double crossing space crew. Yeah. I think, yes, that they're double crossing space crew. I don't think that's true. I think that this is Echo and Dioza's plan to get Dioza and Kane back inside. Yeah. And, I, and I don't know that I believe that he means Dioza or that he means Octavia is the devil. I think we're supposed to think that. And I think that it's possible that the thing that they work out, like I, there's two options. Maybe they figure out a plan where like where both Octavia and McCreary as individuals can be contained. And there's some kind of a like um a third thing we haven't thought of yet that's a solution that minimizes all of these losses that essentially involves taking out the two problem people. Or or there's some or that she's figured out a way to sort of slip inside to basically like that this is how Dioza gets back on the on the right side of enemy lines that she could not sneak her way in like she couldn't she couldn't blast her way in with a gun and take over McCreary she would have to come back as though she's trying to surrender bring Kane with her and they'd have to frame it as though they're like We'd rather team up with your gross, shitty ass than let Octavia win. Like, McCreary would have to think that. The way that they guarantee that McCreary is going to send his forces to that one position is that Dioza and Kane are there, and they'll tell him this is where they're going to attack, so send all your people there. And, or, yeah, yeah. So, like, that's how they have, they, like, they have to go on, they have to have, like, the inside man to misdirect or redirect McCreary's forces in order to open the path for everyone else. Yes. And I think that it, to me, it feels like it feels significant that, that the little, that little kind of like spy smile moment is, you know, like, but it's like Echo and Dioza, Echo being like, do you have an idea? And Dioza being like, of course I have an idea. I'm Charmaine Dioza. Um, I think the, the juxtaposition of that moment with the little exchange between Echo and Kane, where she says, like, trust has to be earned. Like, he's like, let me go with you. And she says, basically, like, no, like, we don't trust you. You know, like, you are, like, like, we're temporarily allied, but to me, you are still on the wrong side of this. Like, you have to kind of prove yourself. And then we watch Shaw kind of prove himself. She's like, all right, like, you're fine. I'll, you can stay. So I think that Dioza and Kane going on the suicide mission to get back on like to get back across enemy lines where they can sort of direct McCreary to do what Octavia needs McCreary to do to sneak her people in so that they can take out McCreary requires Dioza and Kane are the only people who could pull that off. Like if, if Raven walked in, McCreary would just be like, what the fuck? It has to be those two. And it has to look like what it looks like, which is we're fine. We're going to double cross our own people because we'd rather like, we'd rather help you and your people win than let Octavia win. And the monster devil thing is like, you know, like McCreary feeling like, you know, like Kane is saying the devil is Octavia. And what I wonder is if in actuality, that's all for the benefit of McCreary. I, that it's significant that we hear Kane say that 
not to Dioza, not to us, not to himself, not in like a private moment, but it's said to McCreary as part of this scheme, I feel like is something that we can't ignore. So I feel like Echo and Dioza kind of co-concocted this together as a Hail Mary, as the only possible way that Dioza could get any kind of control back. And where I'm interested to sort of see what happens next is when those two, when Kane and, and Dioza come back in contact with Clark and Abby, who have like significantly taken away some of their leverage because McCreary isn't sick anymore. So, uh, so that, so that's kind of how I am reading the end of it is I don't think that, that they double cross space crew. I think that this is Echo and Dioza's plan they came up with together and the cliffhanger of it looking like Kane betrayed his people is what McCreary is supposed to think, and that's what we think. And the other thing that I want to say about Kane and Dioza and their and the really lovely little scene that they that they had about about Abby and the baby is I think that I felt like juxtaposing, you know, the the flashbacks of like Abby's, you know, like Abby's role in what happened with one crew. Um, and our sort of present day glimpse at like the trauma that that caused her and the trauma that she's in trying to detect from this addiction, the consequences of everything that Abby has done kind of crashing down on her at once and like the sort of suffering that she's putting through. I think that it was important that we also had, you know, in this same episode, uh, a small but I think crucial textual little moment where, where we got to hear somebody sort of express both like, you know, like Abby as a hero, you know, who like leaped in front of the baby to save her without like thinking about it even for a moment. And also somebody finally expressing like compassion for how hard it is to kick an opiate addiction. You know, I think that that moment was really important because it felt like this is a reminder that you know, as easy as it would be to see like Abby is a villain because of this thing that she did and she helped co-create the whole blood rain of things. So she's a bad person or, you know, like Abby is a villain because she has this addiction that made her do these terrible things like hurt Raven and hurt Kane. And now she's saving McCreary. And what like, like, I think it's a reminder that, that it's dangerous to frame any of these characters in that kind of a black and white perspective. And I think that it's something that Kane needed to hear somebody say, like, this is just a reminder that like, you know, what she's going through is really fucking hard. You know, and it doesn't make her weak that she's struggling with it. I think both Kane and we, the audience, needed to hear that. But I also felt like, I think particularly coming side by side with probably the darkest, most difficult to watch storyline that she's ever had in terms of doing something that is very, very <laughs> difficult to defend. I think it was a good reminder that like the core of who Abby is as a person you know, is still there, is, you know, still in there. Other people see it. Dioza can see it. And, and that was a moment that kind of made me feel hopeful that like what happens in the next arc of Abby's story is going to involve, you know, her kind of beginning to like come back to herself. Cause I will say like I was a frustration that I had with Clark in this episode. And then it was kind of hand waved away at the end was like, we saw Abby, you know, with, with kind of like with addict logic, but still like we saw her draw a line that like curing McCreary was a thing that she wouldn't do. Like that was a line that she wouldn't cross. And so with, with the logic of, 
you know, a brain that's been kind of torn apart by addiction that she'd rather let Vincent, like, she, like, she needs to get her stash. She'd rather get her stash by letting Vincent kill those people than by curing McCreary. Felt like, like, in the brain of Abby, in the place that she was in, feeling like this was something that she desperately needed, like she had to get the pills, she had to get the pills, but that, that the part of her that still understood how bad and dangerous McCreary was, but that she was still kind of drawing some kind of a line for herself that she wouldn't cross, you know? And, and so when Clark says like, we're going to save McCreary and Abby is like, no, like he like, and then at the end, it's just kind of like, Oh, she's just doing it. McCreary and everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that was, that's like she objected to it when Clark brought it up and then it wasn't like discussed or negotiated again. And I, I would have felt better. Like, like, because the conversation that Clark has with Maddie about it is basically like, because I'm your mom and I said so, you know, which like, which for the way you talk to a kid makes sense. But I think, I feel like Clark and Abby hashing out together the pros and cons of treating McCreary and getting his trust and establishing their own safety so that then they can... I don't know, X, Y, Z. So, so that I mean, like, I think the problem with that is the reason they couldn't have that conversation is because, like, then Clark would actually have to explain her thinking on why she's come to the conclusion that McCreary is her best option to keep Maddie alive. And right. I still don't understand that. Like, it would be great if they had that conversation because then I could understand what, what Clark is thinking. But I'm not actually, like, I'm, I'm like, I guess I'm a little bit cynical, but I'm like, do those reasons, ex- do those logical reasons exist? Like, I just, I don't. <laughs> yeah, like I. Like, I really don't get why Clark stops Maddie from killing him. Because after, you know, Clark's like, yeah, he's a murderer and a sociopath. But like, you know, like, it'll, I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be like, whatever. It's fine. We'll just, we'll just go with it. Like, Maddie keeps reminding her, like, this is the wrong side. You know, like, you know, like, you know, he's a bad person. You know, he's a murderer. You know, he's threatening all of us. Like, he could threaten us again. Like, you know that that all of your other friends are on the other side. And Clark just being just keeps being like, well, I've decided that this is the best place to be to save you. And I'm like, I don't even understand how you concluded that this is the safest thing for Maddie. Other than I guess she thinks that like Octavia will murder Maddie on sight or something. But even then, like, I don't understand, like, like just run away. Like, you know the valley. He won't find you. I just I don't understand Clark's logic. So and I don't understand like how then she would convince Abby of that logic when as far as I you know what I like I don't know it's the, the yeah. whole, that that definitely didn't make sense to me. It know? was a little messy and I I think it was because we like we heard Clark articulate what her plan was when she thought that it was Dioza who was still in charge and Dioza yeah. she had a deal with. So the piece right. that I'm missing is why she thinks for any reason that McCreary would adhere to the same terms. Like Dioza right, exactly. basically was like, yeah, like get out, you know, like get her to surrender, help me win, like you'll be fine. And like and Dioza totally would. Like they had they had a real truce you know so i feel like again like clark herself says yes mccurry is a murderer and a sociopath and i don't trust him but like so it's just but she's giving mccurry the same terms she was going to give dioza which is like i'm going to come and show you that we hacked the eye so that you know octavia's coming so you can kill all these i mean like i just i really don't understand clark here like like i'm going to show you that you hacked the eye so that you can slaughter all of my friends, although I guess, I don't know, maybe she just assumes that everyone that she cared that was still with one crew was already dead. Like, I I just, I really just, I don't understand Clark. And I don't feel like, like, to me, the kind of, like, must protect Maddie from 
whatever nebulous fear of death she has, like threat to her life exists at all costs. Like that doesn't, it, it doesn't totally track for me as a motivation for all of, you know what I mean? For all of like, like, like I was, I'm willing to go with the mama bear thing, but like to throw absolutely every other, everything out the window, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think that the, like the, the, the piece that we're missing is that, Clark is Clark is behaving as though McCreary functions like Giosa and and that yeah. anything that would be applicable in the case of Giosa remains applicable in the case of McCreary while also sort of textually reminding us that she knows that that isn't the case. Yeah, so like it doesn't it doesn't quite add up completely to be like a rational decision. Which I and like she's not supposed to be being rational because Maddie keeps telling her it's not rational, but like like just being like, yeah, no, I know it's not rational, but I'm still going to do it anyway. Like that just isn't like <laughs> as a character beat over stretching over multiple weeks. I just sort of like, I'm okay. Um, all right. I got to go. But uh, yes, I, I, oh, I was going to say, I'm completely in agree with you, agreement with you about, I think the, the double cross at the end was a fake out because the other thing is like, I can't see Dioza just being like, yeah, sure. Let's flip on everyone. After all of that, you know, like, I, I think I think it's set up to look that way because it's where they're going to pull the rug out. Yeah. And I think McCreary has to think that. And so yes, exactly. it's a little like I, I think cliffhanger yeah, for us. I yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a cliffhanger for us um, because we're getting the sort of like we're, we're meant to think what McCreary thinks, you know, on this cliffhanger. And then we'll find out that they are that they're um, they're doing a little like sort of. A, like fake double cross mission. So yes, uh, and I'm not just yes. saying this because I want Echo and Kane to be friends. I genuinely think that's what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> no, no, I agree. I agree. No, I, I like the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, like it can't be what it looks like. A because it's way too sort of like it looks like that, you know, and then like B because it doesn't actually. I kept thinking like that doesn't make that doesn't add up, and then I'm like, right, it doesn't add up. Okay, so that's probably for a reason. So it probably is. Because it's gonna, it's yeah. gonna be a because, flipperoo. Yeah, because Octave, <laughs> because Dio's actual plan, McCreary has. So she's got to do something yes. that he won't expect. Right, exactly. So she has to do something to sort of fundamentally change the plan, or like, or she has to do something to sort of like guarantee that he's going to do option A instead of option B, so that right. then one crew and um and sky crew and uh, space crew can do option. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Like that makes that is very that's super smart, and that it seems like exactly the kind of plan that Dioza and Echo together would come up with. And I, the only thing that makes me sad is that we didn't get to see Dioza and Echo working together. I know, um, but I hope, hopefully, if it turns out that I'm right, <laughs> and that's revealed at the beginning of the next episode, and then we get like Dioza and Echo like on the radio to each other, being like yes. spy bros, that yes. would turn a lot I around for me. Romance. Yes. Oh, yes. same. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so next week is part one of the two-part finale, which is called Damocles, mm-hmm. um, in which hopefully some of the things that we've been struggling with this week will begin to be resolved in ways that also resolve our struggles. So we'll all just cross our fingers for that. Yes. I mean, I, I do think that it is worth like reiterating as like as a sort of... As our final thing that, as always, we are always willing to be brought back around. Like, there's nothing that yes, this show could do. Always. There's all, like, almost nothing that this show could do that, that is like, 
unforgivable for me or that I can't get on board with if I don't feel like it's well realized. So like a lot and a lot of these things feel really fixable. Like Absolutely. like they feel no, like things where a small amount of like exposition or one thing that I thought was going to go left and it actually ends up going right and and whatever the season 6 finale twist is being like super dope. I'm like I'm ready. I'm ready to love it. Yeah. I just yeah. like I'm, this I'm week we had an prepared. off week. We're allowed to have an off week. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know like there there are there <laughs> there are some things that I will that I will go to the mattresses saying are like textual issues that are yeah. getting in the way for me. But like, if, <laughs> if you know, in two weeks, things transpire that I look back on this and go like, oh, I was so foolish to be worried that I will be over the moon. I'm very, I'm more than ready for that. But exactly. Um, but in the meantime, it was a, a little a little saltier meditation than we've had in a while. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's all cross our fingers for a less salty meditation next week. Yes. And- <laughs> Amen. <laughs> all righty. All right. <laughs>